Everything about this moment in history seems uniquely designed to challenge our mental health. We are suffering, we need answers, and we need help. That's why I'm so thrilled to be partnering with Sound Mind Live and Consequence of Sound to host their new podcast series, Going There. I'm Dr. Mike Friedman, clinical psychologist and life coach. With Going There, I will talk with musicians who struggle with their mental health, just like us. After all, mental illness affects us all. And the same artists who have stepped up to share their wonderful work with us are now sharing the intimate details of their journey in living with mental illness. We are going to ask the tough questions, and we're going to have the difficult conversations, all so that we can learn from each other. But more importantly, to shine a light on the difficult topic of mental illness so that we can all come out of the darkness and get the care we need. So we hope you join us on this journey. Going there, the crossroads where music and mental health meet. Consequence Podcast Network. The Psychoanalysis Podcast explores the ways that horror movies examine mental health issues. It deals with mature and sometimes disturbing subject matter, and it may not be suitable for all listeners. It is meant for entertainment purposes only, and not as a substitute for proper therapy. If you or a loved one are currently experiencing mental health difficulties, please contact your local mental health center. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is Psychoanalysis. This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I'm Jen Adams. I'm Lara Utterstall. And I'm Mike Snoonian. Hello! Happy December! It is the most wonderful time of the year, and we here at Psychoanalysis are celebrating with a new theme. And we've picked a heartwarming theme for the month of December. A real feel-good romp. I'm kidding. <laughs> this is maybe the most taboo theme that we've tackled yet. Uh, we are talking about killer kids. The kids that get and... coal in their stocking. Yes, so much coal. <laughs> I mean, you know, they do kill people, so... And we're starting with a movie that I was actually nervous to cover for this. We are talking about Lynn Ramsey's We Need to Talk About Kevin. Whew. So, yes, <laughs> it is a pretty heavy topic, but I think it's an important one. And you know what? We can talk about hard things. And in fact, this movie shows us that it's really important to talk about those hard things. Yeah. So we're gonna, mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> That's <laughs> exactly. a pretty good lesson yes. in that. <laughs> exactly. That's the takeaway. Yeah. Um, so we're going to do it, and it's going to be fine. And we're going to try to keep it light, kind of like we normally do. We're going to be talking about Kevin more than Eva and Franklin ever talked about Kevin in the course of this episode. I think we already have. We've already talked about it Just in the 30 minutes before we hit record, we have talked more about this boy. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But before we talk about Kevin, we need to talk about a synopsis. Oh. (laughs) Warning, I may be doing that a lot, so. Just buggle up, everybody. (laughs) Laura, would you care to read our synopsis for this movie? I would care to, yes. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Tilda Swinton plays Eva, a coldish woman with a love for travel. 
The opening scene shows her tomato serving, which is a thing, intercut with a scene of an open patio door with curtains blowing ominously. This begins two interwoven timelines that we flip in and out of as Eva deals with the aftermath of an as-yet-unknown tragedy and remembers moments from the life of her son, Kevin. Eva becomes pregnant by accident. She's clearly not excited to be a mom and struggles once Kevin is born. He won't stop crying. He won't interact with her. He won't even potty train. And what's worse, around his father, Franklin, Kevin is a normal kid. Franklin thinks she's exaggerating or that she doesn't realize that all she had to do was just pick him up and rock him a little bit and that that solves all the problems like she hadn't fucking thought of that before. So, yeah, we I have some thoughts about this. <laughs> we have some thoughts. With <laughs> Stay tuned. So, yep. Good old Franklin. Uh, <laughs> Played by John C. Riley, fantastically as always, but in this none, house, we respect John C. Riley. Oh, I don't, don't get me wrong. I fucking love John C. Riley. No, don't. Oh get yeah, me, don't he's get, effective. Yes, he's effective as a character that I dislike. Uh, yes. At one point, Eva breaks Kevin's arm in a fit of parental rage. A fact he then uses to manipulate her. During a later illness, Kevin and Eva share a tender moment as she reads him a story about an archer. However, this awakens his love for archery. Hashtag bowshadowing. Eva gives birth to a daughter, Celia, with whom she has a much stronger relationship, probably because Celia isn't a horrid little shit. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Kevin, <Maybe>. Kevin is... <laughs> I mean, we don't Justified. see her that much. I'm just, I'm just going she off She could be terrible. Yeah, we just, well, yeah. just really don't focus on it. Kevin is jealous of this attention and takes his anger out on Celia, killing her pet guinea pig and causing her to lose an eye in a way we just as soon not know about. Shortly before his 16th birthday... Kevin orders several heavy-duty bike locks. Hashtag lock shadowing. While at work that day, Eva learns about an active shooter situation at Kevin's high school. Arriving on the scene, she takes one look at the lock on the door and recognizes it as the lock that Kevin bought. After trapping several students and shooting them with the bow and arrow, Kevin surrenders to the police. Eva returns home to the image of the curtain blowing in the breeze, a callback to the first scene. She walks through the door to find Franklin and Celia's arrow-riddled bodies, the first victims of Kevin's killing spree. On the two-year anniversary of the massacre, Eva visits Kevin in anticipation of his transfer to an adult prison. She asks him why he did what he did, and he answers that he used to think he knew, but now he's not so sure. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> It's heavy. a heavy one. Heavy movie. Heavy. Yeah. Woo, 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 woo boy. So a laugh I guess, riot, says Gene yeah. Right, Exactly. I guess, uh, yeah. <laughs> right. And speaking of how heavy it is, I guess that moves us right into our good old feelings check. <laughs> feelings check, yes. Um, and this is where we talk about our first experiences with this film and how watching it makes us feel. And whew, I have a lot of feelings um, while I watch this. So, um, Mike, would you like to share your feelings about that? Sure. So I think I came to this through the novel first. I think that I was aware that the movie was going to film and it sounded like so far up my alley that I went back and wanted to read the book. I started to read it like really not that long after I became a dad and it really kind of really hit me because I, as much as I love being a dad, it's something I really struggled with for the first couple years mm -hmm. of my daughter's life. I used to travel a lot for work and I always wanted a book with me. So I remember having this and just like reading it in between appointments or out at dinner. And I remember getting to the last 200 pages and like making a choice where I'm like, I am going to power through this. It's midnight. I'm going to get through the last 200 pages here. I'm just going to cancel my appointments the next day, sleep in, <laughs> 
and then drive home because I just wanted to finish. And what yeah. stuck with me was this ambivalence, if not right, outright disdain for parenthood and how that may or may not have shaped Kevin's outcome and where responsibility may or may not lie. The novel and the film interrogate what parts of herself that we give up when we become parents. And there can be a real animosity towards our children when we give up too much of ourselves. When mm -hmm. we talked about overcoming grief, we talked about a process of discovering like the new roles. Laura, I know you talked about, do I have to give up filmmaking because of everything going on with COVID and like what a hard thing that would be and like what that might mean in terms of what your identity is. Mm -hmm. And parenthood is like that in a lot of ways. Like it's super trippy that you're responsible for this little tiny thing and every mm -hmm. single choice you now have to make has to involve this person for like the next 20 years of your life, if not longer. I'm really looking forward to talking about Swinton's performances, Eva. Also, like watching the movie now as a clinician, it's a lot different because you see all of these little markers and it's like, how was this never caught? Like, how is it never, how do parents never talk about it? And then I think of my own experiences with parents who bring their kids in, but deny their kids can do anything wrong. And it's actually everybody mm -hmm. else's fault. And then as someone who works in a school, has a wife who works in a school and has a daughter that attends fifth grade and thinking about like the conversations that we're still not having around practical mental and mental health issues and violence and things we can do to curb what happens. All of these things like basically make for a feeling soup. <laughs> yes. So I pretty much wrote like a novel's worth of notes here. I mean, it's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm looking forward to getting to all of this. There's a lot to unpack with there this. Really There's is. a lot, a lot. Yeah. Yeah, the soup is very thick mm -hmm. and has lots of different ingredients. Split, so. Some kind of split pea uh, <laughs> <Right>. consistency, <laughs> but there, it's maybe a no. pot roast. I'll, right. st I'll stop talking no, about no. this. Uh, Laura, how <laughs> well, do you what? feel about soup? <laughs> All right. I like soup. Mm. Uh, however, let's see. So th this was my... <laughs> This was my first time watching this movie all the way through. I remember I did start to watch this movie a few years ago, and I literally about halfway through decided I wasn't in the right frame of mind to finish it. I could just feel it kind of oppressing me. And mm -hmm. naturally now, here in 2020, I'm in a much better frame of mind. Everything is okay now and not much worse than it was then. Ha, 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 ha
mm-hmm. there's just this inevitability to like you know what's about to happen and it makes watching it really suffocating and you stay so close to Eva and feel it from her point of view really I mean I, I felt like I was like next to her and within her this whole the dirt through this whole journey um mm-hmm. and it was really really hard to watch uh, and one final side note that I just wanted to point out because I don't really see another natural place to do it. I just think the use of color in this movie is really fantastic. So many movies that tackle this kind of heavy subject matter, and this is totally me going off on one of my own little hobby horses, opt for mm-hmm. like desaturated and drab and sad. But these, this movie used color so intentionally and so gorgeously. Um, mm-hmm. There's these vivid reds and blues and yellows here, and I mean they there's they pulse like neon lights, but like in a sickly way, and they're not quite bright. Mm-hmm enough to cover this like rot that's beneath them and we see this with her and the paint and like that is like a symbolic mm. thing of like the veneer of families and what lies beneath the uh, um, outside perceptions I think is just and obviously the use of red as like marking her as tainted throughout this mm-hmm. film you know I just thought it Lady was Macbeth. yeah totally and I just thought it was really just a well-crafted beautiful movie but very left me really really fucking shook <laughs> <laughs> yeah I read somewhere, and I don't know if this is true or not because I read it after I watched it, but I read that every scene has the four colors of the target in it somewhere. Oh, that makes so much sense. I didn't pick up on that, and now I feel stupid. Oh, no, I didn't pick up either. I just read it on one of the things. Because I was was like, there's all these primary colors. Like, the one bedroom is yellow. His bedroom is blue. Of course, Mm -hmm. that makes so much sense. Oh, that's really good. Yeah, I know. I love like looking at it from like a cold filmmaker eye. Well, not me being a filmmaker, but like an analytical processing eye. I think you're right. I think that helped me kind of distance myself emotionally. Like, oh, I I see what she's doing. This is really effective Mm -hmm. Um, because this movie just to a little behind the scenes. I was not really wanting to do this movie. And we had originally talked about doing some other things because I just it took me a while to get my mind ready to talk about this movie again because it just. I was really nervous to talk about it. And I think my experience of watching it, like I made it through and I think it was, it was fine. Um, And I kind of surprised myself by how not emotionally devastated I was by it this time. And I think it was probably because I was taking notes or something, but the first time I saw this, I actually saw it in theaters and believe it or not, I saw it when I was pregnant with my first child. Oh, wow. (laughs) I know. (laughs) And I was like watching it. I was like, Uh, Oh my God. (laughs) Now that was like, I was watching, we had planned for that child. I have always known that I wanted to be a mom. So it was definitely something that was wanted, but, and so it didn't really bother me that much when I was watching it. I was like, Oh, this is, mm." but then after like I, I was a mom and I was dealing with this parts of this kept coming back to me and I kept thinking, Oh my God. Like the one that I think has really haunted me is when she's standing next to the, um, the paver, the, the, the jackhammer. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And just to try to get like drown out the sound of the crying, because that was something that like my first child, I think she probably had colic and there was just like a lot of screaming. And I think there's some connection in my mind when I hear a baby crying that is associated with me. I think bad mom, bad mom, bad mom. And Mm -hmm. that's what like my kids were screaming over and over again. And so I just, I kept, I keep thinking about that scene where she just wants to not, it doesn't matter what the sound is, as long as it's not the sound that makes her feel guilty. Mm -hmm. Um, I really identified with Eva really strongly in this movie, especially after having kids and knowing like how emotionally draining it is. And we'll probably get into this later, but like I, a lot of my anxieties, I think 
can come across as cold sometimes. And so I was watching this thinking, oh my God, are they like, do they know I love them? Am I doing enough? You know? And I don't necessarily think that's what the movie is saying. That's just the way I connected with it. Mm -hmm. I was also really fucking frustrated with Franklin, um, (laughs) which we'll talk about (laughs) more so because he seemed to almost be kind of condescending to her in a way. Yeah, for sure. Really rubbed me the wrong way. And I was really scared of Kevin when I was watching this. And partly because I think Ezra Miller, I've him as a person, we could have a separate conversation about whether he's a good guy or not. But I think he is really great in this role. I think he's very like menacing, but very cold, you know, and like just calculated looking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that performance is terrifying. It is. And that's part of what makes the movie so effective because I was just watching him and I was like, holy shit. And the child who plays younger Kevin does such a great job. Oh my God. Such a good performance. I know. And it reminded me of a kid that I had when I was teaching who was diagnosed. We can talk about this a little later, but sometimes I would catch him looking at me and he just had the most evil look I've ever seen on my, in Mm. my life on his face. And it would just give me the chills sometimes. And he would just be mad at me because like he, it wasn't his turn or something, something really small. And I was like, I don't, I don't know what to do with this and I'm glad that you're not coming home with me tonight because (laughs) get get out of here kid (laughs) exactly I've I've had sessions with one kid in particular that was a lot like teenage Kevin Mm -hmm. um without the intelligence or cleverness Mm -hmm. yeah and it's it's frustrating yeah to be cross for someone that they have that just like doesn't give a shit about anything Mm -hmm. and like you're just like don't really there's not much not much you can do for him. Yeah. Right. The scene with the swabs has also really stuck with me. And I have thought about it often um, because I tend to get kind of squeamish with wounds. I have like a phobia with scars. And that's, I just kept thinking like she, no one else can do this. There is no one else to do this. She has to do it. And it doesn't matter if it bothers her, if it doesn't matter if it scares her, it's her child. She has got to clean out this eye socket. Mm-hmm. And just thinking about that, that that is part of being a parent, too. And I'm lucky because Corey will do a lot of that stuff sometimes. But like it's it's like when my son was born and he was circumcised, like I couldn't change his diaper for a week because it freaked me out so much. But if Corey wasn't there, I would have just had to get over that. And Mm -hmm. so I I watched Tilda Swinton do that in this role. And I just it's always it's it's one of the things that stuck with me. And then the other moment that really hits me is when she sees the lock and she just knows. And I just know. It's like your stomach just drops at that moment for her because she knows so many things in that moment that this is this is real. Kevin did it. And just like all of the years of what she could have done to maybe stop it, I imagine, are just crashing in on her. And that's probably not even a fair thing to question. But I just imagine being in that moment and knowing that your child did this. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a lot of feelings. Yeah, um. <laughs> it's a it's a feeling heavy film. <laughs> it is a feeling heavy film, but you know that's I just keep saying it. Like we gotta identify these feelings because, like talking about them makes them real, and that's how we can process, and that's that shows us like what we are afraid of, you know. And yeah, and like we we referred to earlier, we will get into the the, the lack of being willing to fully acknowledge and verbalize um, with amongst themselves with the parent characters and and the extended you know social mm-hmm. network in this film. Yeah, it's a really big theme here. Yeah, it's very isolating. You know, you I think you mentioned trapped and that was the big feeling I kept thinking like 
she can't walk away. Mm -hmm. I just kept thinking, oh, this is the point. Like, where's the point where you just say, no, I'm done. And you can't Mm -hmm. because it's your child, you know, Mm -hmm. because who else is going to do it, you know? Yeah. And I think that's actually an interesting thing that I'd like to touch on later is like, at what point, even in the aftermath, could she have maybe walked away, but she still chose not to. She still chose to love her son. Mm -hmm. But we can save that thought. (laughs) Yeah, because we are going to talk about Eva also. Yes. So, but let's move on now because we need to talk about our mental health topic. (laughs) And yes, I'm going to do that every time. I even (laughs) wrote that in my notes. (laughs) Um, And we called this theme Killer Kids because I think there's a lot of different disorders and diagnoses that are going to come up, come into play here. It's not really one thing. Um, so, Mike, what is it we need to talk about when we talk about <laughs> Kevin? <laughs> wow, there's so much to talk about here. There's so much. So I think this is going to be less about any one diagnosis or clinical thing and more like a broader overview on some of the more severe childhood disorders because a lot of them like really intertwine in some pretty interesting ways Mm -hmm. mostly what you're seeing would be like conduct disorder with like limited pro-social emotions and there's a real possibility that this is going to transform into full-on like antisocial personality disorder like into adulthood those two things often go hand in hand with one another Mm -hmm. so kevin depicts all the characteristics of a burgeoning psychopath at a really young age, he's showing a lot of the traits that become antisocial personality disorder, although um, you can't get diagnosed with that until you're 18 years old, again, because of mm. like development, development of the brain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would say like with conduct disorder, that's kind of like getting your learner's permit before you drive, basically. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, you get conduct disorder, you can be kind of a psychopath, and then when <laughs> you're an adult, you get to go full-blown. Mm-hmm. One thing that I think we'll talk about later when we explore the relationship with Eva and Kevin is whether or not he would have received a diagnosis at all. Mm. And I'll go into a little bit more of that, like why, but I think when we talk about the manipulations of Kevin towards Eva and others, he would have been a real challenge to diagnose and to Mm -hmm. work with to the point where a lot of clinicians would think Eva is the person that has the problem. Mm -hmm. and that the son is normal, Mm. Uh, which, spoiler alert, that's not the case. Right, Um, and and that's mm -hmm. something you see in the case histories of a lot of people who, I mean, just, you know, being a recovering true crime addict, you know, you hear that in, you know, um, several notable heavy hitter serial killers and things where they basically gamed the system and it wasn't Mm -hmm. until they were later much later arrested um for and found guilty of murders that people were like oh shit they were just lying just straight Mm -hmm. up lying and manipulating their therapies and if it's like a mental health thing like you can't crack somebody's head open and look at their brain and diagnose you know right um i had a Okay. Oh, and- <laughs> is this? Are we going to uh, learn all about your we'll talk a little bit about that. So, um, there is a little bit of like of looking at the brains, uh, especially specifically like the limbic system, mm-hmm. um, which you can point at specific things and go, "Oh, this could possibly lead to psychopathy really? later on or antisocial personality disorder." One of the actually going to get into it a little bit right here, talking about things like ADHD in oppositional defiant disorder versus Mm -hmm. conduct disorder overall. I think the big difference would be with conduct disorder and antisocial personality disorder, you recognize that there are societal norms that you're supposed to adhere to. 
you recognize that there are rules of conduct and you either game those rules to your own advantage at the expense of others or you just don't give a flip. Mm, it's... Okay, so that kind of understanding of there are rules here, it's that's different from autism. Like the two, there's not a correlation between having autism and being uh, anti having antisocial personality disorder. They're two different things. Can you tell just a little bit more about antisocial personality disorder? Because I think when I hear that, I think, well, I feel antisocial sometimes, and I know that it's a different, more like more fuck diagnosable thing. But what are kind of the hallmarks of antisocial personality? Yeah, disorder? we're definitely going to touch on that like super shortly. Oh, I sorry, I don't mean to jump ahead. Not a problem. No, not a problem at all. And there's a difference between feeling a little bit antisocial. Which a lot of times being antisocial is really being introverted. Yeah. And kind yeah. of needing that time and that space to yourself. These are like some real, it's almost like antisocial. You could use the phrase like antisocietal. Yeah. If that makes it's, sense. It's, like it's really. It's like a literally opposed to social versus like being schizoid or being introverted. They're just, mm-hmm. they, they have very different clinical definitions, which I do think mm-hmm. are important to, to, mm-hmm. to define. But mm-hmm. yeah. So I want to assure you, Jen, that just because sometimes you don't feel like being social. Yeah, Jen, you, you are, are not. No means, <laughs> you are no means a psychopath. Oh, thank you. I told you I had asked my therapist if I was evil before. Not a problem. No, he yeah, said you know, I'm not. That's, if, you were, if you were antisocial, you wouldn't give a fuck about asking your therapist that question. You would mm-hmm. be probably trying to figure out how to get your therapist to do certain things for you and make them right. think that mm-hmm. you're a good good little girl so that they, mm-hmm. you can gain some advantage out of the relationship or not yeah. or or be you know basically be manipulative. Mm. Okay. No. Well that makes so it feel better. One of the things like <laughs> yeah, hopefully um you're okay. We're all okay. <laughs> Kevin is not okay. No. Um so one of the things that gets lumped in with this is oppositional defiant disorder because mm-hmm. it actually it shares a lot of the same traits as conduct disorder. But I want to make a little bit of a distinction here. Mm-hmm. Kids with ODD, yeah, you know me, they often <laughs> present as irritable and angry. And you have to be a certain age to get that joke, folks. But all right. <laughs> but well, if you do, 90s, you are losing your mind with hilarity right now. Early 90s hip hop represent. <laughs> yeah, yes. um, we all got it. We're all of a certain age. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Kids with ODD often present as irritable. They often present as angry. And they have a difficult time getting a handle on their emotion. This can lead to a lot of behavioral outbursts. A lot of times it's comorbid with things like ADHD with hyperactive presentation. Kids with ADHD, as we know, have a hard time focusing. They have a hard time sitting still. They have a really hard time following directions. In a future episode, we'll probably talk about how I feel ADHD is kind of over-prescribed. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is like, you don't let kids be kids anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, recess has gone from twice a day to 15 minutes a day. There's yep. all structured play rather than free play, but that's another tangent yep. for another episode. And I'll join you um, on that tangent because I've got a lot of thoughts yeah. about that too. <laughs> so kids with ODD also struggle with impulse control and not being able to like handle their impulses leads to that aggr- the aggressive behaviors, which can be both vi- verbal and physical. When a child presents with ODD, one thing to look for is to see if there are any other learning disabilities there. See if they're on an individualized education plan. Do they receive special education services? Or are there any other accommodations that are in place for their schooling? Things like 
They have a longer time to take tests. They're able to use like an organizational chart. They can go into a different room to take tests. In terms of the specialized education services, if they're not in a separate classroom, do they have like a um, aid that comes in and assists them when they do their reading work or their writing work or their math work? One of the things, as my wife is a school psychologist and she pointed this out, a lot of kids with ODD often have low decoding skills. Mm-hmm. And what that means is when other kids are able to start not just read, but pick up on the new inside, the new. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what that means, what that means is when other kids are picking up on the new. Oh my God. <laughs> Nuance. Nuance. Wow. Nuance. Keep this in. <laughs> yeah. All right. When other kids are being to pick up on the nuances and critical thinking skills, when it comes to interpreting reading passages, the kid with ODD might struggle to still phonetically sound out words. Mm-hmm. So think about being the kid in that classroom. Everyone is having discussions about what they're reading and able to kind of write out their thoughts on it and you're having a hard time forming the words still mm-hmm. and that can cause a lot of challenges and difficulty mm-hmm. i had two students that had odd yeah. and they both were very slow they had a really hard time reading it's interesting yeah. that you say that decoding yeah i have a little of a thought on treatment later on but we're going to save that a lot for the next episode because yeah. oh boy <laughs> It's really hard. Yeah. So conduct disorder is a little bit different from ODD in that the child can demonstrate impulse control. You still see a lot of the same patterns of behavior where other persons' rights and feelings are trampled on. And the typical like age appropriate or culturally appropriate or expected uh, or the expectations, like they're flouted by the child. Like they know they're there. They know how they're supposed to behave and they choose not to. Mm-hmm. It's different from someone that's unaware that these rules exist or that they might lack an understanding of how to interpret these rules and how to behave according to expectation. And I think that's where I would make the distinction Mm. between conduct disorder and, say, someone that has autism. Like, I work with a child that has autism, and they also gave him ODD Mm. as a diagnosis before he came to me. And I'm like, he's not oppositionally defiant. Like, he's not going out of his way to flout these rules he's not going out of his way to get people upset and having outbursts like it's the way that his brain is processing these Mm -hmm. these social cues and how he struggles with them like it wasn't really fair to him to give him that and i think like last time i did my like yearly i took it off his thing i'm like nope like that's not what it is like so i felt confident enough after working with him for long enough to be like, nope, that's not going to be part of his treatment. And I, I so. think the movie actually has a really good example of this of this distinction in it when mm-hmm. the scene where she is trying to get young, like little baby toddler Kevin to toss the red ball back and forth, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and she ends up, t- t- you know, taking him to the doctor, and it's intercut with he pushes the ball back once mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. stops doing it, and she says, mm-hmm. say, mama, and he goes, no. And she goes to the Mm -hmm. doctor and says, you know, is there something wrong with his hearing? Is this autism? And he's like, well, he's not showing any of those traits. He's fine. Don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. The thing is that we're seeing in that moment, Kevin understands what she wants from him and is choosing not to give it to her and to to reject her motherly attention, basically. And and I found that sequence, like, just so harrowing (laughs) because he's looking at her like, I fucking know what you want, bitch. And like, right. Yeah. There's no help for you. Mm hmm. 
it's so chilling at a young age mm-hmm. how he knows how to push her buttons. Yes. And how he knows how to withhold from her uh-huh. more than anything else. Yeah, that is one that in a sequence later on we'll talk about um before the daughter is born. I just flashed to the scene on her as a development of look at me. Here's a candy bar. Oh, I'm withholding it. Look at me getting <laughs> off. <laughs> Sorry. No, never apologize for bringing up arrested development. Never. Oh, it's so good. So what we see like in conduct, conduct disorder in laser psychopathy in adulthood is this acknowledgement of the rules and, refuta- and and basically we're going to refute them. Some of the traits include cruelty to animals, using a weapon to cause serious harm to others, forcing others into unwanted sexual activity. They often will deliberately destroy property. They'll be deceitful. They can lie or con others in order to curry favor. And they'll act in emotionally manipulative ways in order to get what they want. Hmm. Can um, I add one clinical trait to this? Sure. And that's putting only jelly on white bread and yeah. then eating a giant jelly sandwich. I think that is we generally a clinical uh, trait of burgeoning psychopathy. Yeah. And I think at that point, those people just get the chair. Yeah. There's no yeah there's, so you just you look at that just... jelly sandwich and you go... <laughs> Yeah. So we're oh, kidding, no. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we're kidding. <laughs> yes. just I was like, scene. oh my God. No, no, no. There's that scene where Kevin is like making that giant just jelly sandwich mm. and it disgusted me so much that I wrote in my notes, we... add this to the dark trifecta along mm. with like bedwetting, setting fires and torturing animals. Yeah. And just, right. Just yeah, jelly I was going to say. Because <laughs> that's yeah. like the true we crime definitely... thing too. It's like mm-hmm. these are the hallmarks yeah. of a serial killer. Yes. We definitely need to talk about Kevin's dietary habits and how grotesque they're so they are awful how, how infantile how infantile yes. they yeah. are throughout this so in terms of like kevin one of the clinical distinctions with conduct disorder would be like the addition of limited pro-social emotions to the diagnosis and that is basically a severe impairment of one's ability to show proper emotion or foster healthy relationships with other people so this would include two or more of the following the Displaying a lack of remorse or guilt for their actions when they cause harm to others. Callousness and unconcern for the feelings of others. A lack of concern about, say, their performance in school or other areas of life that would be considered important. Uh, and then, like, having a shallow affect. This is where all the shown emotions... So a shallow affect is basically all the emotions that you show... They're surface level at best, and they can be turned on and off, like, really quickly. So, like, think of, like, the child throwing a tantrum. They get what they want, and they stop right away, and they do that over and over again. It's basically, like, they know how to game you Mm -hmm. at that point. When someone does show emotions, if this is the case, they're doing so for, like, personal gain. Like, you might intimidate another person so that you get what you want yeah and you and you yeah. see this in a lot of cases like when they talk about ted bundy like that sort of glib superficial charm that a lot of these mm-hmm. the more organized or intelligent serial killers display um not to keep mm-hmm. bringing this back to that but it just brings to mind again my p- potentially scientifically unsound uh, database of true crime knowledge that i have mm-hmm. <laughs> that, I'm, yeah. that mm-hmm. I'm forced to live with now so <laughs> yeah it's you know, I mean, like this, I think this this depiction does such a good job mm-hmm. of showing a lot of these things. Yeah. And it's not like Rob Zombie's Halloween where it's like, oh, we're just going to hit a checklist. Like yeah. he kills animals, check. He hits a kid with a stick and kills him, check. You know, mm-hmm. like 
He takes pictures of his trophies. Check. It's not like it's a lot more clever. Yeah, it's so much subtler it's and more. much more over, yes. spread out over yeah. time. And you know, mm-hmm. and it, mm-hmm. ugh, yeah. yeah. Well, and we he I guess we would consider this a spree killing. I think, but I could easily see him being a serial killer that continued for years and years. Just mm-hmm. the life circumstances I think that he's handed lends him to this big action rather than that. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. yeah. So one of the things that make this so hard to treat is like the bog standard ideas of reward and punishment systems, they don't really have a lot of impact Mm. here. So if caught doing something they're not supposed to, like most kids will react with at least a little bit of shame or contrition. So think about the kid that gets caught sneaking downstairs to watch TV after bedtime. Yep, he really does want to watch SpongeBob, but when mom or dad catch him, he probably feels bad about it Mm. too. With kids like Kevin, there's no reward that's going to lure them into like acting properly. There's also no punishment that's going to really stop him from doing what he wants to do. The act itself, the chaos, the destruction, the hurt that you're causing someone, that's the reward. Mm. I mentioned this article later on, but there's an article about whether children can be considered psychopaths. And they talk about one young boy who pushed a toddler into the deep end of a pool then just got a chair and sat by the edge and watched him drown. Mm-hmm. And when they asked, why did you do it? He was like, I just wanted to see what it would be like to watch someone drown. Mm-hmm. Like that was the reward right mm-hmm. there. Like that's chilling. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pretend that that's so, not real. <laughs> okay, not a problem. Yes. That was Children of the Corn. Oh, of course. Four. Yes, yes. <laughs> the, the pool corn. That was um, one of the sinister yes. uh, cut scenes. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, With this movie and the next one that we're going to cover, the majority of environmental factors that might have someone lean towards this tendency towards conduct disorder or antisocial personality disorder, they're not present in Kevin. Really, you don't see a lot of those environmental factors. You look for things like families that are on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale, things like poverty, lack lack of access to essentials like proper nutrition, Poor housing and comforts can lead to someone being a lot more callous and a lot more unconcerned about other person's feelings. Mm-hmm. We could actually get into a whole discussion at a different time, whether it's those things that lead to the pathology or whether it's le- the, because you're in a poor spectrum, do you just not have access to services and treatment mm-hmm. that could actually be helpful? Parent drug and alcohol abuse can factor in. Childhood physical or sexual abuse can factor in parental neglect or lack of a loving, nurturing relationship with the parents contribute to this. And I know we're going to discuss the relationship with Eva and Kevin. I don't think it kind of gets to that level that you would see that psychopathy really start to show itself. Mm. If if this was enough to push someone into psychopathy, we'd have a lot more psychopaths running around. That's true. And right, I I think the prevalence they they say like the it's maybe like 1% in society is, which is still a pretty big number when you think there's like 350 million people in America, mm-hmm. you have potentially three and a half million psychopaths yeah, running there, around. There's, there's not, not... There, there, yeah, no, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. There's a book called The Psychopath Next Door. I'm blanking mm-hmm. on the name of the author, mm-hmm. but I mean, it's not everyone that is a quote psychopath, like is violent, violent or murders people. A lot of yeah. times it really is just about that like lack of remorse, that right. coldness, that manipulativeness, right. and it can really... help you function even more successfully in in certain like i'll I'll say a Mm -hmm. certain number of surgeons certain number of politicians things where Mm -hmm. you need need Mm -hmm. that kind of like cold focus yeah but so it's it's a very complex subject 
someone like a, a Bernie Madoff would yeah. be con- could be considered a psychopath under that. Yeah, it's, you know, using that as a definition. There, there's a line in the movie where he first buys those bike locks and says he's going to sell them to kids at school for a marked up price, and John C. Riley goes like Donald Trump, huh? And I just wrote in the notes, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that, uh-huh. and it and it hits a lot different in 2020. Yeah, than I know. I was like, oh no. You know? I'm like, uh, yeah. If you only knew Lynn Ramsey, if you <laughs> right. only knew. Right. So the other thing is this order tends to be a little bit more present in boys, although it is present in girls as well. It presents a little bit differently between the genders. Boys tend to be a little bit more violent overall. Although that doesn't mean that it's that's exclusive to young men. Mm-hmm. Girls tend to be a little bit more on the manipulative side of things. And again, it's not, it's not a one-to-one ratio. It's just saying that like when it presents itself, here's how it often does. I think with this movie, you get like a frank representation of the callous and unemotional traits. Um, the bullying of others, the lack of remorse or guilt, manipulating others, and the lack of empathy. And... Kind of one of the last things I want to talk about in the clinical section, and I'm sorry, I know this bit's going a bit, no, oh, no, bit long tonight. Um, you know, strap in, should have said strap in, kids, <laughs> grab a cold beverage. <laughs> no, I appreciate all of this information because it's really fascinating, yeah. and I think it's really relevant to this conversation I think so too. Yeah. yeah, we need to talk about it, frankly. <laughs> you know what? We, frankly, we frankly. need to talk. About, we Franklinly need to talk about it. Okay, this. we do. So, so <laughs> Thursday was the car puns. <laughs> And that's actually I don't in wanna... a future episode now. Yes. <laughs> that's true. I don't want to stay tuned. Oh yes. In, yeah. I don't want to toot our own horns, but we did really good. <laughs> There's a lot of car can't, puns in there. Can't mix the puns. <laughs> so at first glance, you would look at Kevin and say, "Oh, there's like no empathy there," and that's part of his character. But I think a deeper examination exposes something that's really way more insidious and chilling. Mm-hmm. We talk about empathy. We're talking about our ability to relate to other people, to understand their circumstances, their thoughts and their feelings, and how we interact with them as a result of our interpretations and understandings. There's a couple different types of empathy, and that includes cognitive and emotional empathy. Cognitive empathy refers to the ability to put ourselves in the perspective of others. When you use cognitive empathy, you're essentially taking stock of a situation and you're formulating your own reaction to it. You know, saying like, oh... If this person gets a bad grade on a test, they would probably feel really sad or upset. Oh, you know, this person was named captain of the swim team. They're probably really excited about that. Therefore, I'll go congratulate them. That's what you would do in this situation. Emotional empathy refers to actually like taking on the feelings of another person as they're experiencing it. It's like really putting yourself in their shoes and feeling what they feel. And it's why, say... If you're comforting a person that feels sad, you might start to think about times where you were really upset or something really made you feel down and out, and you might cry as well. In this movie, we see cognitive empathy exploited, and we use it as a way to manipulate the feelings of other persons. So in other words, a psychopath understands on an intellectual level what someone would feel in a given situation. That information is then used to manipulate others, either through words or actions, in a way that the disturbed individual finds to their own liking. And I think you'll see that in particular in the um, grand day out scene with Kevin and mom Mm -hmm. later Mm -hmm. on, like how he's able to really manipulate her. Mm -hmm. Jen, you were asking about like 
cracking open someone's head and looking at their brain, Mm -hmm. you know. So we get a pretty good idea of what the psychopathic brain looks like due to the work of psychologist Kent Keel, who's the author of The Psychopath Whisperer, which is a book I immediately ordered just for the title. Right. (laughs) I was like, ooh. So he scanned the brains of hundreds of different inmates hoping to spot the differences between like your run-of-the-mill violent inmates and your psychopathic ones. And he found two anomalies. So in the limbic system of the brain, the psychopathic one tends to have less gray matter overall. This part of the brain is responsible for processing emotions, and what we see is less development of this section in psychopaths. So it means that an individual might be able to understand why their actions are unacceptable on an intellectual level, but they don't feel the emotions that are associated with those behaviors, like guilt, remorse, and anxiety. Mm. The second structure in the brain that showed an anomaly was the uh, amygdala. Amygdala. Just amygdala. Amygdala. Thank you. I, for the record, folks... I'm terrible at pronouncing words. So, um, and, I, yeah. and I'm a big nerd for brain stuff. So just, you know, Perfect. I have a brain this tattoo. Is where, <laughs> excellent. And this is where I'm like a bit weaker. So that's awesome. <laughs> so in this case, like the, the amygdala is often undersized and that could lead to empathy deficits. Hmm. It makes it way more difficult for an individual to recognize social cues or distress signals. So the example I'll give is like, You and I might look at another person's body language or facial expressions, or we might pay attention to the tone of voice that someone's using with us for the contextual clues on how to appropriately and respectfully respond to someone. A psychopath really doesn't recognize these things, and they're going to press forward and attack rather than pull back. Mm -hmm. So let's say, like, the three of us are planning a show, and I notice that, like, Jen, you feel distressed for some reason. I might, like, change what I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. I might rephrase it. I might go, like, Jen looks pretty upset right now. Maybe it's something I'm saying. I could change my tone or check in or, you know, understand that, like, what we're doing is not working. Let's change it up so she feels safe and comfortable. Mm-hmm. If I were, like, a psychopath, <laughs> um, you're welcome. Um, if I were a psychopath, I wouldn't do that. I would be like, Jen seems upset right now. I should just press my advantage and get what I want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, like she's okay. at a weaker vantage point because she's upset. Maybe I'll say something to yeah. further throw her off. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And I say, I say the amygdala is also the fear center of the brain. So that mm-hmm. has a lot to do with like, that's what's activated and it starts the fight or flight response. You know, it, it releases those those chemicals. And so yeah. if you have an underdeveloped amygdala, you're also less kind of be less reactive. And that's where you get a lot of the coldness and calculating traits, I think, yeah. I'm guessing, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. come with psychopathy. Hmm. So next episode, what we'll do is we'll talk about the challenges of this diagnosis and why clinicians are often hesitant to use it, mm-hmm. uh, and what, like, because there's really very limited treatment, and there's really, the outcome expectations aren't that great overall. Mm. There's a lot to talk about there, but as a little bit of a spoiler, it's really one of the toughest things you can diagnose a kid with, because it really feels like it's going to be the death knell for that kid. Like, mm. your kid's a psychopath. And there's probably not much coming back from it overall. Mm-hmm. There's really not a lot you can do to treat it that's going to be very successful. If you get a chance, listeners, Google a pair of articles that are pretty fascinating reads on childhood psychopathy. Mm-hmm. 
When Your Child is a Psychopath by Barbara Bradley Haggerty in The Atlantic, and Jennifer Kahn's Can You Call a Nine-Year-Old a Psychopath in the New York Times. Mm. We're going to dive into those articles next time that we meet, and I'll talk a little bit about my own experiences working with kids like this and really how challenging and how frustrating it is. Yeah, I can imagine for this, like a diagnosis, I don't know how much it would help Kevin, but it might really help Eva, you know? Yeah. Like I think about some of the students that I know that have been, the the ones that I was talking about where they're like, I think when she gets older, it's probably going to be some kind of psychopathy diagnosis. She's just mm-hmm. not old enough for this yet. Um, yeah. But, but so the parents are still dealing with this thing. They're not really getting the support they need. I know the pet, the parents were on medication, like um, antidepressants. And like, I knew that mom and she would come in and I would just think, oh my gosh, what is her life like every night when she goes mm-hmm. home? And they had a, like a three-year-old in the house too. And it's like, uh, just seeing like as this kid got bigger and more powerful and the amount of destruction she was able to cause, um, it it was scary, you know, just for me as the music mm-hmm. teacher seeing her for an hour a week. So, and, and yeah. one little one little side stat that have kind of plays into this in an interesting way, and in the topic of killer kids, is that a lot of uh, childhood abuse, especially childhood sexual abuse, is at the hands of other children. Mm. Um, and mm-hmm. I'm not going to in any way break down what that means because it's just a fact that I heard, and I have mm-hmm. no context for it. But I just think it's mm-hmm. an interesting thing to think about in this situation as children are rapidly grow and one is a little bit bigger than the other and they're often left with each other in these kind of circumstances mm-hmm. and you and, and and you we have not had any dialogue you know or enough dialogue in this country around mental health in children um it can be a very toxic and scary thing so yeah well and that's kind of what I think I was kind of thinking when I said it a lot of the diagnosis would be more to help Eva to say okay now we need to take it to the next step where maybe he doesn't live in the Mm -hmm. house right now and I'm not advocating for institutionalizing anyone I'm just saying this is not helped in this case it would have prevented him from killing you know and I'm not saying exactly minority report the kids or whatever right like you know (laughs) right them or something but there are extreme cases where I think it does become necessary yeah yeah and all that to say I think we just need to we need to keep talking about these hard things so that we develop the tools and the resources so that it's not like a death knell you know Mm -hmm. so that you we start to see ways to go forward Mike thank you for kind of unpacking all of that I know it was a lot of really clinical stuff but I really appreciate kind of getting a sense for what it is we're talking about and I said at the beginning of the episode this is one like a taboo subject and I think people just don't want to talk about this because it makes us so mm-hmm. uncomfortable and when and we're so quick to d- excuse the behavior of children by saying oh they're just kids you know but yeah. that leads to oh it's just locker room talk or oh they didn't mean it you know and I think we've we've got to like be able to talk about the nuances yeah. of this so mm-hmm. and there are schools of thoughts like we had talked about like really briefly like ADHD mm-hmm. like how kids every kid gets that diagnosis now mm-hmm. and a lot of times it's like no like you're at like kindergarten is no longer kindergarten yep kindergarten is more like first grade like when I went to kindergarten we brought in action figures and we learned how to socialize with one mm-hmm. another but you know in kindergarten now like you're learning how to read you're learning how to do like addition it's not yeah it's different now well there's a lot of research that says that a lot of kids are not ready to read until they're like seven or eight years old and that's second or third grade you know and we're just we keep bump this is my teacher rant we keep bumping standards down to accommodate Mm -hmm. the standardized tests which just 
makes it quantifying education in a way mm-hmm. that I think harms students. Yeah, no child left behind, and, baby. Really great uh-huh. legacy. <laughs> Ooh, and, but kids don't get free play anymore. Yep. Like everything, you know, like it's not like, all right, it's a summer day. Go ride your bike, find your buddies and do whatever you want and come home for lunch and dinner. Mm-hmm. It's let me call for play dates. You know, yeah. like you would not, your kid cannot show up unannounced on someone's doorstep anymore and say, hey, can they come out and play? Mm-hmm. That you'd, you'd get childhood services called on you right. at this point. And it's like, okay, your friends are here. Just go and do whatever you want. It's like, let's set up a bunch of structured activities for you mm-hmm. at this point. Um, sometimes kids just need to be children, and I don't think we do enough of that anymore. And I think, like, to tie it back in, I think, like, that is a normal childhood thing. Kevin does not display those things, but I think when you do mm-hmm. not let students or you don't let kids like kind of be kids, it gets mixed up and you just look at kids who are acting mm-hmm. out for so many different reasons. You can't mm-hmm. tell what is a serious problem and what is they yeah. just need to run, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, so now let's start talking, and we kind of already started going into this because it's really hard not to equate a lot of this with Kevin, but let's start talking about specific ways we see this in relation to this movie, and I think before we talk about Kevin, we need to talk about Eva, so we need to talk about Eva. Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I really, really empathized a lot with Eva in this movie, especially the scene where she is giving birth and then she is just sitting yeah, and I staring. Yeah, I the way they did that. That was oh, such gosh. a like clever filmmaking that was very uh, brief but emotionally yep. resonant, you know, told you everything you needed to know. It really did. Yeah, about both of them too. Um and I just it made me think about when I had my first child and I did not have postpartum depression, but it was a very traumatic birth and we had complications. It's the most pain I've ever experienced in my life. So when she was finally born, and I, I was having a C-section, so I had a lot of drugs in my system from the hospital, not from the street. But I just remember <laughs> <laughs> I remember them wheeling her over or Corey brought her over and I was looking at her and I just felt so numb. And it took me a couple of hours to really kind of warm up and start like looking at her with love. And I've had a lot of guilt about that for a long time and I finally kind of unpacked it a little bit in therapy and I I understand because I think I was just in shock um, but I think that that scene it just it spoke to me so much because we see her birth and birth is hard it's uh, it hurts a lot of times it doesn't if you're pregnant now you're gonna be fine but um it <laughs> like it's it's a shocking thing and I think postpartum depression is real postpartum psychosis is real mm-hmm. and I don't know if we know enough to know if Eva actually has that because this is really the only scene that we see but I just god it I was also flashing back to to the times when KDM was crying and I just could not make her stop and it was like you're doing something wrong you're doing something wrong and it just makes it so much harder there's also there's a moment where your child gets to a couple of months old and they finally start interacting with you like smiling at you and um, like giving back in a way and I feel like that sounds selfish to say but for the first couple of months it's so hard it's so draining yeah and they are really just like kind of little meat meatloafs you know and they're sweet and you love them but they're not giving you anything yeah they're just like they exist as need you know right and I mean it's I think it's noted that 
I, I just was talking to my friend who's a new mother and it's basically they said like the first few months are going to be especially like if you haven't experienced it before some of the hardest you know because yeah it's your 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 hormones are fucked up you know even if you don't have full-blown ppd like you know you're it's it's a very very challenging time and mm-hmm. uh, can be very isolating because you need to spend so much time with this child that is not emoting and and just to our conversation on empathy earlier having that give and take and having someone reflect your feelings back at you is just so much part of the human experience that we all mm-hmm. crave, crave you know so yeah i think too it's important to look at how much evil was asked to give up uh-huh I think it's really, you know, the film begins with that really, it's really one of the few moments of exuberance of the whole film when she's at the Tamista festival and she's like being passed around and she's just so joyous. Mm-hmm. And that had been her life. Like she was an author of renown. She was like a, able to travel the world as a, as a travel writer. She lived in this like culturally vibrant city that made her feel alive. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, she has to give all of that mm-hmm. up in order to care for someone else. And you see, like, you see it weighing in her before the birth. Like, when she's in the Lamans class and all the young mothers are around her and they're really excited, she's just, like, sullen and kind of, like, examining these changes in her body. Mm-hmm. It cuts to, like, these little children running past her, and there's, like, no reaction from her whatsoever. Like, this kind of all of these changes are weighing on her before the birth even happens Mm -hmm. to the degree like when she's giving birth like the nurse or the doctor are saying like stop resisting Mm -hmm. like she's trying her hardest to keep kevin inside of her longer Mm -hmm. because once kevin comes out her life as she knows it will change and i heard something interesting and it was really this doesn't happen to men like it does to women once eve is a, a mom She'll always be a mother first. Like, yep. She won't be this author of like however many books. She won't be this travel writer who's re- respected enough to be able to travel the world on her own many times over. She won't be known for successfully being an entrepreneur that kind of runs her own business. All of those things are now secondary. Like she's known first and foremost as a mom. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't really happen to men. Mm-hmm. Not in the um, same, yeah, not socially no. in America, especially not in okay. the same way. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So this part of her identity is completely gone yeah. at that point yeah. or subsumed. And that's something that I, a couple of things I want to say to that is with when she is giving birth, it changes every single thing about your life, but it also changes everything about your body. Like mm-hmm. my body is completely mm-hmm. different than it was after I had kids. And I kind of just like, even I can't wear the same shoes that I used to wear because my feet slightly change shape you know a couple of months after you have a baby a lot of your hair falls out it's just like it really changes every single thing about your body and that's a a thing that mothers experience that men don't Mm -hmm. and I I've experienced this a lot with both of my jobs now because especially working from home I work on a team full of um, a lot of men who have kids but they also have stay at home or wives who stay at home. They mm-hmm. don't, they're, they're stay at home moms. And that's a fantastic thing to do if you, ch- I'm not coming down on that, but I'm doing this work. I'm doing the same amount of work that they're doing, except I'm also doing all of the stuff that their wife is doing too. And I was like, well, that, that's why I'm so tired. You know, that's why, Yeah. you know, I don't it's hard, know. It's hard to be a mom. I think it's, I think it's fair to say that. And I, I, it's one of the things that's being discussed right now is the pandemic's, 
toll on is hitting mothers yeah. harder harder than it is fathers and like you know like mm-hmm. an unprecedented number of mother you know women who are mothers are being are leaving their jobs because they just cannot handle working full time and caring for their child from home doing helping with their remote schooling yada 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 and it's, yeah. it's it is in the numbers statistically hitting when you don't see the same number of men who are fathers leaving the workforce and that sort yeah. of speaks to this unspoken amount of emotional labor that we expect mothers to do whether mm-hmm. explicitly or implicitly um and again i don't i'm not familiar enough with with the you know the stats and the studies on this to to speak to it with confidence but it's definitely a phenomenon and it's definitely Mm -hmm. something we should be talking about especially because we offer very little uh support as far you know we're one of the worst countries for maternity leave we're so behind the times in almost every way when it comes to supporting especially mothers but fathers as well but i I do think that that women bear the brunt of it and and this movie is a really Mm -hmm. um vivid depiction of that and exactly how it plays out one of the things that was so interesting to me about this was whether I think everyone blames Eva for this. I think mm-hmm. Eva blames we, we kind of I don't know if we come down on whether she blames herself, because I think there's a part of her that thinks she should blame herself. And then there's another part of her that thinks, no, I'm not like that. I'm I'm mm-hmm. going straight to hell almost comes across as like a, a defiant joke kind of rather than what she actually thinks. You the, know? There, that no. tension is really, I think, such a huge part of the film. And mm-hmm. I, I think I said before we started recording that, you know, my first reaction while I was watching this was to scream none of this is her fault. Like, mm-hmm. it's not about fault. Like, everybody is treating her so horrifically, even though she lost just as much as they did, if not more. She lost mm-hmm. her entire family and her horrible son is in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and she lost her livelihood. She lost her daughter and she lost her husband. But her ambivalence toward motherhood is not the reason that this happened. You know, right. she, she did try. She was not a perfect mother, but who is? And mm-hmm. she she did what she could with the situation and and the skills afforded to her and the vocabulary that she had, which, uh, you know, to, you know, unfortunately, maybe wasn't enough for what she was dealing with. But, you know, it takes two to tango and her husband wasn't <laughs> very helpful either. Um, right. And you know, she she was hardly setting out to abuse or create a shitty little serial killer or spree killer son. I think it's worth a conversation on the kind of toxic soup that it takes to create psychopathy or psychopathic yeah. behavior. That it's, you know, which Kevin to me definitely is. Well, one... One of the things that I think it would be easy to latch on to as far as like the blaming Eva narrative is the couple of moments where we see her saying, you know, I wake up every morning and I wish I was somewhere else, you know, and I think that I'm glad that we see that here. But I think it's easy to forget that that we see her for almost two hours of how many 16 years of his life Mm -hmm. we see her screaming we see him screaming for two minutes but that was a full day of screaming and that was the next day and the next day and the next day and she's probably not saying that to him every single day but she is living with this every day and I think about that with the pandemic right now it's easy to say 20 years from now yeah we all stayed home 
for a year. But like the actual minute by minute experience of dealing with this child would probably cause you to break and say this. I wish I was somewhere else, you know? I mean, yeah, I kept thinking while while watching her deal with his behavior. I'm like, I think I would have snapped a lot sooner. (laughs) Right. I would try not to. I think we... Yeah, I know that it's apparent. Like, we all have those mm-hmm. moments of regret. You all have those moments you wish you could take things back. We just had something happen to us this past week that was my daughter's fault, mm. and it was really bad. I will never say that mm-hmm. to her. Like, and I know that in the moment, I thought it in my head and then stopped myself from saying it out mm-hmm. loud because it would have damaged our relationship forever. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, instead, like, comforted her and said this was an accident and it's okay it's no one's fault and then we just moved on and dealt with the situation and we're very lucky it's going to have like actually a good Mm -hmm. outcome um but in the moment it was like really sad and scary and like we were all in kind Mm -hmm. of shock we've all had moments where we look at our kids and we're like why did i do Mm -hmm. this um i have a relative who they have like two older children and then Years later, they're like, oh, we want it. They had another one. Like, we'd have another one if we could. I'm like, dear God, why? <laughs> like, that was my reaction, which is like not something you're supposed to say out mm-hmm. loud. But, you know, I think we all, Eva, like yelling at her child in that moment and going like, every day, mommy wakes up and wishes she was in France. Uh, yeah. Every parent. Mm, feels that way. Yeah. And I think one of the things I've worked with, like with a client on, is like they are involved in like social media. And they say, I look at all these other families and all these other moms. Oh, God. And they have these picture perfect lives. And like, why isn't mine like that? Why don't I feel like that all the time? And mm-hmm. I just want to say that what we talk about is that people tend to post their best selves in social media. Like right. you read mm-hmm. my Twitter feed and I am like the most charming, funny, astute <laughs> person in the world, you know? And like my, f- unless they bring up Mandy, right? No, no. I'm even, I'm hilarious and astute when it comes to my observations <laughs> on how terrible Mandy is. But like people tend to post about their best selves. Like they don't mm-hmm. tend to go into yes. like the day. And even when they're having a really bad day, they kind of play it off. You know, it's really hard to be vulnerable, I think, a lot of times mm-hmm. on social media. You know, it's I, so... I, I have an idea for... I've, I've wanted to do this for a while of, of like... But I don't I don't have enough accessories in my life. By that, I mean a child. That's really a terrible way to put it. Mm-hmm. But I would, love, <laughs> I would love to see an Instagram account that was just, like, real life. Yeah. You know, like, I want to see, like, photos of, like, the horrible mess. Mm-hmm. Photos mm-hmm. of, like, your screaming child. There was, like, a, like a Tumblr blessed. or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where a guy posted, like, pictures of his child screaming and, and like, what the child was freaking out about. Like, that was a Tumblr mm-hmm. for a while. That was very mm-hmm. funny. But I just love the idea. I'm so obsessed with how we curate our lives on social media. And, like, I'm always interested in what's just outside of the frame and yeah. Yeah. what's going on behind the camera. And um, because... Even even now with the pandemic, like we curate what's behind us for Zoom calls and we every but like anything down here, I could pan down and it's, you know, something horrific is there. I'm just I'm obsessed with that tension. Yeah. One of the greatest commercials I've ever seen. It's a French ad and it's this like dad and this like four year old at a grocery store. And the kid is running up and down the aisles, knocking shit over, screaming. Like, he puts, like, eight things of cookies in the carton, and the dad, who just looks beaten by the world, 
slowly takes them out and puts them away, and the kid has a meltdown of epic proportions. And then mm. at the end of the ad, it just says, wear a condom. It's basically an ad for <laughs> It's the greatest ad I've ever seen because a lot of times that's what parenthood feels like is you are the yeah. person in the grocery store while everything melts around you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think about that with a lot of the people I interact with on social media do not have children and like they'll get a screener or they're just going to watch this movie tonight. And I think I just want to watch that movie, Mm -hmm. but I've got to give baths and I've got to do bedtime and I've got to and then I have to fucking sleep because I had to get up so early to do all this other stuff. And it's so easy to be jealous of that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's. It just is something that you live with when you have a parent. And I mean, I say all of this. I absolutely love my kids and I would not change the fact that I have children. I'm just saying it's so easy to to the grass is always greener, especially on the really hard days, because there are a lot of really hard days. My life is so much better with my daughter in it. It's Mm -hmm. she's made me a better person. She's fun. Um, She's hilarious. She's real. She's. (laughs) brilliant in a lot of different ways and i can look at that and go like i help create that you know like Mm -hmm. we've taught her things we've spent time with her we've shown kindness and empathy like we don't shy away like we've never talked to her like with baby talk like we actually talk about difficult things with her you know and because of that like she's who she is she's also the person who i can tell four times in 30 seconds like take this mat bring it downstairs shake it out, put it back in the rabbit's room. And she just looks at you like, what? Put this box over here and then stare mm-hmm. at the wall. And you're like, why aren't you listening to me? <laughs> and people do get, you know, there's like a huge, this isn't everybody, but a lot of people I know that have chosen not to have children, which is their personal choice and it works for them. And that's not a problem. Mm-hmm. And God love you. Yeah. It's none of my business, but then people will make it my business by telling me the 400 reasons why and how dare I judge them. I'm like, I'm not judging you for this. Like, don't have them if you don't want them. Like, that's totally mm-hmm. fine. But it becomes yeah. like a really big discussion. It's mm-hmm. none of my business whether or not another person does or doesn't want to have kids. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a fraught topic because I, I think for a lot of people, especially women, that kind of are like, have felt like, maybe their family Mm -hmm. or whomever expected them to have children. And if you're seeing that kind of defensiveness, it's usually a reaction to something they experienced at the hands of someone Mm -hmm. else that isn't you. But now Mm -hmm. you're getting, now you're getting the laundry list of reasons that they had to, Mm -hmm. you know, defend, defend themselves with, you know, and I mean, I've been very lucky that I don't really get that a lot. My mom, I mean, my relationship with my mother is complicated, but she always tells me whatever you do, don't have kids, you know, like that kind of thing. And I'm like, cool. Thanks mom. Yeah. Um, and, but I mean, she's more obsessed with societal collapse and that kind of thing, like global warming and that kind of thing. But you know, the, the only person I ever would really, I get it from is my gynecologist. Whenever I go in for my like annual exam, she's like, well, you know, when you have when you when you're ready to have kids, things are going to be different, blah, blah, blah. Have you thought about this and that and this and that? And I'm always like, why do you assume mm-hmm. like I'm 35 if it ain't and I'm single, like it probably ain't going to happen, lady. Um, yeah. And then, you know, so I think that people. I mean, at least from my own perspective, if, you, if you're getting even more of that, mm-hmm. it can lead to a touch of defensiveness. And um My mom told me, like, when she and my dad got married, his mom basically, like, and my grandmother was from Armenia, and most of her family was wiped out by the Ottomans. So I can kind of understand wanting to have, you know, 
not have the family name end, but my every Mm -hmm. weekend they would go visit her. And every weekend she would badger my mom about when she was going to have a kid. And my mom would just go home and cry. And to my mom's Mm. credit, like she never asked my wife, when are you having children? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I kind of wanted to talk about this a little bit because I don't know if Eva, like in the movie, I think they talk a little bit more about whether or not they're going to have kids in the book than we see in the Mm -hmm. movie. I don't think they really have a discussion about it here. It's presented as accidental in the movie. It is. And a lot of, I know I have a lot of friends who have chosen not to have kids and I think that's fantastic. Like having a child is like getting a tattoo on your face. Mm -hmm. Like it will forever change everything about your life. So make sure you want to do it. Um, and it's hard in the best of circumstances. Now, it's fantastic, but there are also a lot of other things that are fantastic about life. And it it kind of surprised me once I had my second child and that need to have a child that I had had for my entire life turned off. And I was like, oh, I don't want to have any more kids. That mm-hmm. I'm done. And just this kind of internal knowledge of like now thinking about getting pregnant again kind of fills me with dread. But we need like women need to have support in that decision. They need access to birth control. They Mm -hmm. need access to, and I'm not saying Kevin should not, should not have been born. I don't want to make that judgment for this, but I think that um, there are a lot of problems um, with, in society like there's this really interesting study about I'm gonna totally fucking butcher this but there was a study about like this crime wave that happened in a country in Europe somewhere and they tracked it down to 20 years before that they had outlawed abortion Mm -hmm. and so they had so many unwanted children Mm -hmm. who were not being supported and it resulted in a yes. lot of problems, you yeah. know. Exactly. I think people who are extremely against abortion full stop don't really realize or choose not to realize the actual effects on right. uh, 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 and like long term effects that it can have when you have children that are not given the, the nurturing that they that they need and deserve to be to be um, successful in life uh, yeah. or are given the chance to be successful in life. I was going to say, I think Eva's regret over having Kevin is is a theme that is sort of a, like a linchpin moment in the movie because it keeps flashing on the clock 1201 which was when she conceived Kevin I think we're mm. meant to understand in that scene with her and John C. Riley. they keep flashing back to and he's wearing the Led Zeppelin t-shirt and the clock in the room is flashing 1201 and she keeps mm-hmm. and you see that as a recurring motif and it's like and I, what I was going to say earlier that I and then lost was that I I think Eva is really punishing herself Mm -hmm. throughout this Mm -hmm. film for all of the choices, the things she did and didn't do stemming all the way back to the choice to have, have Kevin and all the things she did say and didn't say where she's kind of in this obsessive dance and the way that the flashbacks are constructed, it's like, it's like somebody pacing the same route in a room and the floorboard Mm -hmm. is, you know, or the carpet is getting worn down. And I feel like that's, that's the theme. And so even though, you know, obviously everyone in this town is treating her like, yeah, this is your fault, bitch. Like, I fucking hate mm-hmm. you. I'm going to literally smack you in the face in public or whatever. I, I think that we are more than anything in this movie forced to to sit, sit with her, her feelings mm-hmm. of guilt and, and self-punishment mixed and intermingled with this desire of like what my life could have been if I never had mm-hmm. him. And also like, did I make the right choice in having him? Yeah. And it's and so it's this this horrendous damned if you do damned if you don't guilt 
And that's why we see her in such a state of abject despair, mm-hmm. substance abuse, just trying to numb the pain because she's so fucking trapped. And it's almost like, like, has she always been in this situation? Was there, was there even a choice? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that like, Again, because she didn't get the chance to talk about it with John C. Riley, because she didn't get the chance to make a considered decision or, you know, didn't have the emotional vocabulary to be able to initiate that kind of conversation when she was younger before she conceived Kevin. It's almost like she was destined for this. I don't, I don't mean that mm-hmm. literally, but I feel like uh, thematically that's what we're getting. It's almost like Shakespearean tragedy, you know, like yeah. this was always going to be her fate. Yeah, like the deck is stacked against her mm-hmm. leading to this. Well, and that's why I think it's like the question of whether or not like Kevin's outcome is Eva's fault isn't really that isn't really a fair conversation to, ha- to right. have. I think what you can do is you can say that like at a very young age Kevin understood his mother's feelings towards mm-hmm. him and that's what he latched onto. Mm-hmm. And I would say like the the inciting incident that drives Kevin towards the sh- the mass shooting isn't anything that Eva did. It's when Eva and and um, Franklin decide like we're going to dissolve our marriage. And I know we'll talk about that in a bit, and I'll say like kind of why that mm-hmm. is. But like the fact that like Eva that that Eva was cold towards her son at times. And I know like and I, I am using the book as a little bit of of reference material, mm-hmm. but it's spelled out a lot more clearly. Um, how cold she is towards Kevin. And one of the things I think the movie does really well is like Eva never gives up on Kevin. And there's that suggestion at the end of it that with the folding of his clothes and preparing Mm -hmm. the room, that like once Kevin is released in a few years, he'll have a place to come back Mm -hmm. to. And that there's like some level of hope there. She never admits to Kevin, I I hate you and I regret Mm -hmm. you, even though that would be a very human and a very natural thing to Mm -hmm. do. So Kevin latches on to this feeling of coldness, and that's what he decides, this is what I'm going to exploit. Mm -hmm. This is where I'm going to find my pleasure, is by making this other person miserable, by making her doubt herself, and really, like, anything I can do to deny this person a moment of Mm -hmm. happiness, a moment of peace, a moment of joy, I'm going to do my damnedest to make sure that happens because that's where I find my pleasure. Which is so devastating because not only has she had Mm -hmm. to give up everything that made her feel good about herself, but the reward that she could possibly have gotten, like this empathy coming back to her, he's denying her. So not only Mm -hmm. like, yeah, Yeah. I took everything away from you by my existence, but also I'm going to make you feel like shit for everything Mm -hmm. you do for me. And the other side of that is Franklin gets pretty much everything that he Mm -hmm. wants. Like, Eva tells him, like, I don't want to leave mm-hmm, the city. Mm-hmm. Like, I love it here. Like, I there's nothing you can do. And the conversation that Franklin has with her when they go and look at that absolutely ridiculous McMansion, mm-hmm. the conversation, the way he talks to her, it's almost like how you would talk to your child right. if you were moving and they were leaving behind the only life they ever knew. Like, like he has to convince her. You got to just make these choices. You're a parent now. This is the only mm-hmm. way that it is to live, you know, as, yeah. as someone who, mm-hmm. as someone who grew up in a city and loved growing up in a city. And I feel like tremendously benefited from the culture and diversity. I found that so offensive. Like mm-hmm. the only way you could possibly live is to take them oh. out to the suburbs and grow up there. Like I just found that like patently offensive. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. But he gets whatever he wants he gets there's there's the the sacrifices are always made in one direction yes. mm-hmm. um 
and we're going to, you know, and I don't, I don't have the antipathy towards Franklin that I think others would. <laughs> and I think that's a gendered thing. I really do. Yeah. And I know that it, he's been described as like the reason he doesn't see this real darkness in his son is because he carries this kind of optimism in him that says like, if we just will him to be good, he eventually will be good. Mm-hmm. Which isn't really optimism, it's denial and it's harmful yes. and destructive. It's dopiness, mm-hmm. yeah. yes. But there's this idea that like we can, as a parent, and look, personalities are formed at a fairly young age. And as a parent, we do shape our kids in a lot of different ways. But you can't, there are some things that are just like genetically hardwired into us. Yes. And, you know, you cannot take an avocado and turn it into an apple. They're just two different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things I think that frustrated me so much about Franklin is not necessarily the way he was with Kevin, but the way he was with Eva. And mm-hmm. I could see being manipulated by Kevin. And I think it's implied that he works outside of the home and that she is alone with Kevin a lot more than he is. But he still comes home every night and he still sees this. And even if he doesn't see what is happening with Kevin, if he's seeing the manipulative behavior, he still sees Eva and he sees that she's Mm -hmm. suffering. And there's a moment where he says, I think you just need to see somebody. And I was like, fuck yes, she needs to see a therapist. She is clearly hurting. There is something wrong here. Even if nothing... Even if Kevin was a totally normal child, she is suffering. And that is something that you need to take seriously and deal with as well. And I, I, as as much as that's true, like that you know, she did need to talk to someone. It's like so do you, Franklin, and you don't exactly. Need and it was the way he said it was very dismissive mm-hmm. and like, oh, geez. And, which you know, again, I'm flashing back to my own life experiences. People saying like one particular person screaming, "You need to fix yourself." And it's like, right. Do you not mm-hmm. see how this is a relationship and there's a mm-hmm. dynamic going on here? And it's not just it's like, yeah, yeah you know. It just I found that yeah. so so infuriating. And. Mm-hmm. Child rearing is often disparaged or taken for granted. Yep. You know, I've definitely had like young moms that I've, I, I work with in a clinical setting and their partners like won't change diapers. They won't give the kid a bath. They won't cook a meal. And I'm not saying they, I'm saying he, it's always a he. He won't cook. He won't do a meal. He won't do basic household chores. And the response that I, you know, when, when he asks like, well, what are the reasons that, you know, your husband or your boyfriend says, they just are too busy to like help out with that. The answer is always, well, I worked all day. Mm-hmm. Is this idea that like chasing a screaming toddler around that like shits their pants all the time, that is screaming and yelling, that needs constant attention, that won't nap when it's nap time. There's this idea that like, well, you get to stay home and that's the equivalent of like going to the puppy and fireworks factory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's just not that thing and we see that happen again and again and laura to what you just said this idea well you need to fix yourself like i've actually said to clients i've said like look we've seen one another for a year these are all the self changes you've made that are really positive this is fantastic the issue isn't you the issue is the relationship you're in mm-hmm. and unless and i go i'm not a marriage and family counselor so ethically i cannot see the two of you as like a family therapist if you really want to change, you need to convince your partner to go to like a family counselor. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's what you need to do. One-on-one counseling is not going to do you much good anymore. Yeah. I could see you every day until the sun crumbles into dust. <laughs> and it won't change. You're never, yeah. you're never going to be happy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and I grew up with a father who um, did not, who saw that as woman's work. And I think it's caused me kind of some, a lot of complexes that mm-hmm. we'll probably talk about in later episodes. But like when I look at Corey and I'm really lucky that he is like, I feel like we are really partners in parenting yeah. and mm-hmm. I'm the one who's at home right now. But like he takes my daughter to work with him and they have a small office and he does her mm-hmm. school and I do Aaron's school. Mm-hmm. I do my son's school. Yeah. And there was a, a time when, when I was kind of dealing with my PTSD, that the water going through the pipes in the bathroom was really triggering a lot of migraines for me. So he started giving the baths for them. And then, mm-hmm. like, it was so he took that on for me because not because he looked at me as being weak, because he just saw this is how I can help. This is a need that my family has, and I'm doing mm-hmm. it. I was also having a lot of stress around being in my kitchen for a while. So he started making dinner for the kids. And, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, and, it just I'm really grateful for him taking on those things and being willing to and not seeing that as beneath him you know yeah and I I could get on a big rant about how caregiving is not valued because caregiving is seen as a female job and that's why Mm. teachers are not paid well that's why nurses are not paid Mm. well we don't value caregiving in this in this country and we don't pay for it which Mm. is insane it's some of the most valuable it's literally the building blocks of life and what sets people they're up for for you know potential success and we just completely shit Mm -hmm. on it it's insane it is and i can tell you that as a dad i benefit from these lowered expectations because i can can't tell you the amount of times when like ada was like really young like push her in a stroller young that like whenever someone saw me doing things like that or taking her out and about with me the amount of like smiles you would get and oh look at what you're doing you're, you're so great, great. like oh, you're yeah. doing basic like, child rearing tasks exactly right. <laughs> what are you babysitting your own kids today I remember when my one of my best friends, Nip and I, we went out for breakfast when Ada was like super young and in her little, not even the high chair. She was in like the little um, travel seat. And, and the waitress like, you two are so brave for doing what you're doing. And I'm like, we're like having pancakes? Like, what are you <laughs> right. talking about Like, right maybe now? they're like, poison? <laughs> like, what are you trying to tell yeah. me about the quality of your breakfast meats that I'm brave to? Oh, you think we're like, no, this is just, you know, we're out and about. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, and I think I think the the key phrase that I would like to Google right now and pull up some articles that I've read in the past uh, that I don't have to hand are is emotional labor. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's mm-hmm. something I've seen a lot of writing about, but really only in the last five years or so have I seen that become kind of a common talking point because it's something that I think has gone unspoken for so long. And this yeah. movie mm-hmm. was what, 2011? Yeah. Yeah, so yes. so I think it's kind of just emerging into the zeitgeist, a lot of these conversations about the emo- emotional labor and what it means to be a caregiver and the work mm-hmm. that the toll that that takes on you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we see this with Kevin, who is, uh, I, I guess I could say, abnormal child. Like, these are yeah, things that... Yeah, I think that's that, fair to say. <laughs> I think so, too, yeah. yeah. But these are things that happen in chi- chi- just all kids. Like, even if Kevin were completely normal, Eva would maybe still have a lot of these things that she's dealing with. Yeah. So, they, might, they might get divorced. They may fight. But he probably just wouldn't have ended necessarily with him killing a bunch of people. Right. right. Do we want to talk at all about if this could have been prevented and and what yeah maybe could have done differently if anything well i think we need to talk about it i, yeah. I would say that we <laughs> need we need to talk about it right so let's talk about kevin because we need mm-hmm. to talk about kevin john c Riley. we need to talk about it 
Mm-hmm. What if he was the same thing, but as he was playing this character as Steve Rule? <laughs> anyway, carry on. One of the things that really struck me, a lot of these things really struck me, but when she throws him in the corner and his arm breaks, he doesn't cry. I know. And it's that, so fucking weird. I know. <laughs> it's psycho as child. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And I wonder, Mike, when you were talking about the brain chemistry and like not feeling emotions, I wonder if that came into play too. I took that as Kevin is playing three dimensional chess. Mm-hmm. Like his arm breaks and he immediately knows 10 different ways he can use this to his advantage. Mm-hmm over his mother for basically the rest of their lives everything he does like we talked briefly about that scene where they're passing the ball back and forth he does it one time just to show mom that he can Mm -hmm. right just so she knows that he's not stupid that he doesn't he totally understands what she wants him to do i'll do it for you once and you'll get that reaction because it hurts that much more when he doesn't do it again Mm -hmm. And there's this look of like spite on his face when that occurs. Kevin's incapricious, which is when you poop yourself, basically. Mm. That's the clinical term for it. It's a power move in his yeah, part. Yeah. Because like, you know, he he she has to take care of it at that point when she would rather be doing anything else. Mm-hmm. And usually within capricious, there's like an underlying condition, like there might be loose bowels. Um, there might be even a UTI, it, there might be stomach ailments. It does crop up as a possible symptom of conduct disorder. Cause again, it's all about flouting that expectation mm-hmm. of, um, where does your crap go? It goes in the toilet. Well, nope. I'm just going to put it here in my pants. And make you is deal it, with it. Is it related mm-hmm. to bedwetting or would that be a separate issue? That's a different because, one. That's urinesis. Well, that you could have one and not the yeah, other. Yeah, because I think, I mean, you hear that all the time that one of the things that serial killers exhibit in childhood is bedwetting. But I was wondering if that mm-hmm. was more because they're often undergoing trauma and it can be a developmental dis- delay to based on like head mm-hmm. head trauma and stuff like this. I, I, so I was yeah. wondering if they were at all related or just completely so separate. They're totally not separate. They are definitely related, and they can be symptoms of things other than like psychopath um, psychopathy. Yes, um, but in this case, it can also crop up. They can turn up in those ways as well. Um, the most. This... Sorry, go ahead. I wanted to say what I was going to say pooping. Sure. <laughs> Let's talk about poop. We, we need, need to we talk do. about pooping. You know, everybody poops. The thing that I thought was most insidious about the pooping thing, and I say this as uh, uh, having a child who potty trained late and could not move up into mm-hmm. the next class because they have rules about that. Like, I wonder mm-hmm. if, like, the element of he can't start school because he will not use the toilet, which leads her to be isolated because she has to homeschool him right. too. And she can't work. Exactly. It's just another manipulation mm-hmm. for him. And I wonder mm-hmm. if after the breaking the arm incident he knew i've got this manipulation now so i don't have to keep mm-hmm. shitting in my pants well, all day he immediately does it that he does night, yeah you know? and that's and that tells me he knows how to do it he could have done it this whole time he just chose not to and think about franklin's reaction when he's like i don't know what you did but whatever you did you're a genius oh, it's so creepy. and what eve is gonna have to know for the rest of her life is like i had to break my son's arm in order to get him to use the toilet mm-hmm. uh and how much that would like hurt her as a person yeah. to know that she's done this Ugh. the scene where eva wants to make that one space in her her house oh my god this house this mcmansion <laughs> is giant and it feels so empty mm-hmm. 
and it feels so devoid of life. Like, I think that one of the things Lynn Ramsey does in terms of her visual style, which is really incredible, is that she takes this giant setting and she makes it feel as claustrophobic as a prison Mm -hmm. because there's just no sense of joy or life in this house. It feels so sterile overall. The one exception to that is this room that Eva wants to create that reminds her of her travels, Mm -hmm. that really says to the world, like, this is who I am. And look, like, we're on video. You can, you know, listeners can't see, but I have, like, framed horror things behind me. I have all all of the Telluride horror show stuff behind me. I have, like, my bookcase and art for my daughter and PJ Souls, like (laughs) a signed picture. All the things that make me feel like who I am. Like, this room, even though I share it with a rabbit, it's my room. It's my little area of the house. All Evil wanted was this one space. Mm-hmm. And Kevin understands that. She talks to him about it. And, and very patiently, because he's like, I think this is really stupid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, a thing kids do. I would have been a much harsher it. to him in that moment. But <laughs> gosh, he would have gone through that way. Yeah. yeah. Gosh, well, and the look on his face when he says it, too. I know. Even before yeah. he paints everything, I, I would have, you know, been like, it's not okay to talk to me like that. You don't get to right. call my yes. shit stupid. Go yeah. to your fucking room, you little piece yeah. of shit. Like, you know, but right. I mean, again, I'm not a parent. Um, <laughs> just want no, to point I that think out. That <laughs> what you, I think what you said there would be completely appropriate to say, like, look, you're not allowed to talk. And, to and I yeah. think, and Sorry. if there's one criticism I have is that I feel uh, of, I guess, of the parenting that I see on display. Again, I feel like an asshole saying that because I am not a parent, nor can I understand what she is going through. But like, I notice they don't really set those boundaries with him verbally. They kind of allow mm-hmm. him or just kind of, I feel like they're worn down by him yeah. and just kind of like let it happen after a certain set of like constantly being like, no, I've, you can, you know, it, yeah. It feels like she's so desperate to have any sort of connection with her son yeah. that she allows it to happen, which by the way, that's 100% accurate. Yeah. That is something I I will tell you that I've worked with kids with this sort of disorder. And both times it's been single moms. They insist it's everybody Mm -hmm. else. It's not the kid. Everyone else is wrong. Mm -hmm. And I got to the point, one in particular, I'm like, I'm done. Like, I'm not going to treat them anymore. Because, like, no matter what anyone recommends, it's wrong. Mm -hmm. And no one understands them. And like, oh, I don't see this at home. It's like he's sitting here next to us right now calling you every name in the book and telling you to F off to your face. Mm -hmm. He doesn't respect you whatsoever. Yeah. But if that's how you feel, great. I'm just not going to be part of it because I'm 45 minutes of your week Mm -hmm. and you're supposed to do some things the rest of the time in order to like bring him up. If we're not going to do any of those things... I'm not going to waste this 45 minutes a week that I have on him. Mm. I'm going to work with somebody who actually is looking to, to better themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hard conversation to have, but I tell you that like it needed to be done. Yeah. Yeah, she was so desperate for any sort of connection that she allowed him to like basically run roughshod over her. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, I think... was thinking, sorry, go ahead. Just so that I think that became kind of a, a, a dance that neither of them could escape mm-hmm. from, and it sort of right. snowball, no. snowballs the behavior. Well, and I think, uh, thinking back to when we were talking about his dietary habits earlier, I just imagine if you are constantly trying to get them to, an eight-year-old to just 
go mm-hmm. use the bathroom that like just the fact that they will eat something like you're just I think you said worn down that was how I read that mm-hmm. is like there there's just yeah. so much that they're dealing with it like okay fine just eat this cereal because mm-hmm. I because yeah. I can't and keep f- fighting this battle every minute of the day in Franklin's reaction again a lot of it comes down to like the lack of support uh-huh. she has from her partner and the complete lack of co-parenting mm-hmm. like parents can have different rules and they can kind of like they need to be on the same page with yes. one another. Mm-hmm. And they definitely you know, were not like, in this movie. They no. weren't. So what you see is like everything that happens to her is completely undercut by her mm-hmm. husband. Mm-hmm. Because he'll say, Well, geez, he feels really bad. And you know, kids just get into stuff. And there's never a moment where he's like, God, it must feel so terrible for you to have like work so hard on this space mm-hmm. to make it your own and then not only that to have it ruined knowing how much that it's meant yeah. to you overall and that's it's all it's completely framed in geez how is this going to affect uh-huh that? yeah and oh he's he just he didn't he just wanted to make it special for you which is like so, kevin mm-hmm. gaslighting yeah yeah, uh-huh. yeah it's like by men, gaslighting by proxy you know mm-hmm. and i think back yeah. to when i was growing up i had this poster on my door of the beatles and i just always had this fear in the back of my mind that my dad was going to get really mad and come in and rip it down one day and i kept thinking that when i was watching this it's like she's got this one safe space in her house that feels like her and this feels like a place that she can be happy for a moment and he won't even let her have that and it's just devastating i thought it was interesting later in the film you see her back in that room and she left it like that she left she left Mm -hmm. the paint the paint splattered maps and it almost is like i got it it, to me that read as a symbol of like this is my story now like i Mm -hmm. I, you know i I cannot escape from this you know there, there is me in the background but it's also forever forever yeah. stained just in the way that the red paint is always like a little bit on forever her forever unclean mm-hmm. yeah it actually looked really good i know i thought it, <laughs> I hate once to she say had it, all the like little know. masks and stuff up i'm like you know it doesn't look bad <laughs> like, right yeah. it's not the point but I, again that's just good art direction <laughs> mm-hmm. right i think one of the things we see here is just how similar kevin and eva are to one another yes and i think it's framed in some ways like Sw- S- tilda swinton and 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 um Ezra, they have like very similar facial structures. Mm-hmm. And I think you see that in the film in a moment where like he dips his head into ice water and her head, her face emerges out of it at that mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. Um, you see their posturing when they are in the um, prison visitation room, like they mirror one another. Mm-hmm. And that moment where he like bites his fingernails and he lays them what? all out, mm-hmm. the next one of the next things you see is Eva like very meticulously picking eggshells out of her yes. scrambled eggs mm-hmm. and lining them up. So a lot of those, yes, yeah. It makes me, I don't know, there's something yeah. about that that made me like so Un- squirm yes. so hard is that this is mm-hmm. sort of disgusting, tactile, ugh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's meant to make you uncomfortable. Yeah. It's meant to make you 100% feel that. But mm-hmm. he is very much her son there's really not any of Franklin in him whatsoever. Yeah, he couldn't look further from John C. Riley. Like when they go mm-hmm. out to the mini golf, and he, it's sort of like they almost have the same haircut. They've got the same kind mm-hmm. of like lithe and willowy figures, and it's like mm-hmm. they look sort of otherworldly. And you know, yeah. it, you couldn't. It's mother and son, all right. Oh my god! And the the fact that he won't even wear a jacket there because he knows people are going to look at her as why didn't you put a jacket on your kid? Just mm-hmm. the level of the manipulation there is just yeah. so chilling, relentless. And that- 
how she tries to connect with him there by like disparaging other people. I know um, I, that, that moment was really, I mean, I was not expecting that because it's such like mm-hmm. an asshole thing for her to say, but then it, 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 it again reinforces that this is the mother's son and the, the mm-hmm. yeah, they are mm-hmm. the connected, they are the right. bonded pair there. <laughs> you know, yeah. Right. And, and what, when she says like, you know, don't give me this thing about fat people having slow metabolisms. Like they're always eating every time you see them. It's like, whoa, that's, Look, as an overweight person, I'm like, fuck off, Eva. Right. I know. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you're fucking Tilda Swinton. Shut the fuck yeah. up. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. When Kevin, yeah, I feel like that was ab libbed, and that's just Tilda, like, talking <laughs> in between takes. No, there. I can't um, imagine that. <laughs> I so I really hope um, not. I really hope not. Me too. too. But when, what Kevin does is he's like, geez, you're really harsh. Well, you're one to talk. He's mm-hmm. like, well, where do you think I get it from? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that really takes her aback. Mm hmm. But what do you see him do next? Like the next thing you see before they go to dinner is he's absolutely stuffing Gorging his himself. face. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's oh, like, I didn't put that together. No. Mm. He has. So it's two things here. A, he's ruining his appetite so that they can't have dinner. Mm-hmm. And then B, he's doing it in a, such a grotesque way that you know this is how she pictures people like myself eating. Yep. He's like, what? I was hungry. Right. No, you fucking weren't. You know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. I just kept wanting. This is when, like, I think about that moment in Sex in the City when Miranda's baby is crying. She's like, if this was a guy, this is when we would break up. And I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> but she can't. She can't leave. And there are yeah. so many moments in this where, like, oh, this is when I would say stop. Mm-hmm. And so, also, side note, the thing he does with the bread is so disgusting to me. Ugh. That is a, a thing that I yeah. have about bread. But it's just... it. it to go like the fingernail thing, it's just so off putting, like mm-hmm. intentionally off putting. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's crushing like fruity pebbles into mm-hmm. the countertop. Like he's always doing these tactile things. Yeah. yeah. With like, like children's food. It's mm-hmm. just. Every moment of his existence is repulsive. Like I, I yeah. don't know. <laughs> like I just feel like I, like the entire time this movie was playing, I was like, I hate him. I hate him. Right. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that like she she hates him too but she can't admit that to yeah. herself like she yeah i think she does love him like in the mm-hmm. way that he, that is in in mm-hmm. a sort of cosmic sense but like i think she absolutely despises him and with good re- right. and with good reason he's despicable <laughs> like, yeah i i just wanted to mention too the cognitive em- empathy thing mm-hmm. that dinner sequence when he like breaks down exactly Ooh. how the conversation would go mm. and he does it in a way that almost like spits in her face yep. yes he's like He's not even going to give her the ability to do the perfunctory, like, good mother thing. Yeah, like, perform and it's motherhood. it's so twisted, mm-hmm. yes, and it's so mean. And I think mm-hmm. one of the real tragedies of Eva is that she tries, does try to adapt to motherhood. Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes to Kevin, it does come off at times as, like, perfunctory. Perfunctor, perfunctory. It comes <laughs> off, thank you, yeah. and wrote... Um, it's like kind of like checking items off a chore list. Mm-hmm. The only time that like there's a real connection is when he gets sick mm-hmm. and he's basically like too tired to be mean to her. Yeah. But yeah. Even <laughs> even then he can't have like obviously his dad loves him and adores him. He can't have dad involved in that. He just turns his vitriol outwards to dad for that brief period of time. Yeah. Um, I thought that was interesting. And in my notes I wrote, does this kid want to be munchausen by proxy because like <laughs> you know it's like the only time oh. he's nice to me is, is when mm-hmm. he's like injured or or sick like i you know i had a flash mm-hmm. in my head where oh is that what's gonna happen she starts making him yeah. sick in order to to chill him the fuck out but like mm-hmm. yeah. obviously not where the plot goes but i think like 
it's hard to fault Eva for giving up on Kevin. Because when yeah. you see with Celia, it's a completely different side of the parenting. Mm-hmm. And I think like the one moment that like Franklin rings untrue is when he gets upset that she's pregnant again. Yep. Because like it, that doesn't strike me as something that would upset him. Yeah, he mm-hmm. seems like he, he really likes being a dad and seeing himself yeah. as this good dad figure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But like it's clear from the outset that Celia is Eva's. There's love there. There's warmth there. That little moment where they're like skipping hand in hand through the street mm-hmm. and like she's singing this ridiculous little song to her. Like that's probably one of the things when she was like, I don't want to be a mother. I don't want to do things like this. She actually takes a real joy in it. And it's just like it's really heartbreaking that scene later on where this is real tenderness. So she's like cleaning out. Mm-hmm. Celia's disinfect with her damaged eye socket mm-hmm. and how much like tenderness and care there is there yeah that scene made um, me start almost tear up mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. let's mm-hmm. talk about the divorce and how that sure. affects Kevin yeah so at the end of the day Kevin does the question is like why doesn't Kevin kill his mother mm-hmm. why does he kill Franklin why does he kill Celia and he doesn't kill her because he doesn't want to kill his audience like everything that Kevin does is geared towards causing as much damage as possible to his mother's psyche. And if he killed her, that just goes away. Like, that gives her relief at that point. So eventually, Franklin is the one that says, like, I can't do this anymore to Eva. Like, I can't be with you because you hate our son. When he learns about the parents' divorce, that's when he's driven to new levels of depravity. Uh, Because if he's... If if Franklin and Eva divorce, Kevin's going to live with Franklin. Like, there's mm-hmm. no question about that. Right, and he even That's overhears them saying that. Yes, mm-hmm. and he says, like, I, when 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 the dad's trying to, and again, instead of having a difficult difficult conversation with Kevin, saying like, sometimes parents fall out of love, and you know, we need to do this in order for each of us to be happy, and we're just not anymore. He says, oh. You know, sometimes you can hear things out of context. And Kevin knows. He's like, he knows he's the wedge that is is between the two of them because that's what he's wanted to be for this whole time. So Mm -hmm. he says, I am the context. If the two of them are no longer together. Okay, here we go. This is from an article um, beyond the final girl. We need to talk about Kevin and motherhood in horror. And it's by Hannah Holloway. And you can find this on talkfilmsociety.com so just a little quote from a much longer article in this fraught moment kevin realizes if his parents divorce eva will return to the happy independent career and life she enjoyed before her family changed everything leaving her son stuck with his ignorant father in a society he despises Mm -hmm. and you can see this you can see eva taking celia Mm -hmm. and saying you know what I'll hire a fucking tutor. Yeah. And we'll travel the world together and I will be so happy. Mm-hmm. And Kevin knows he can't allow for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what can he do? He can remove the only source of happiness for her, which is her daughter. Mm-hmm. He can kill Franklin out of anger. And then Eva even says in the prison scene at the end, well, you've done it up pretty nicely for yourself. You got to use being hopped up in Prozac as an excuse for not be you know not being in control of yourself you were tried as a minor as opposed to an adult and you're going to get out in a couple years as far as 
spree killers go, you've done really well. Meanwhile, I'm left, Eva being left behind, to kind of pick up all the seeds from the destruction that he kind of... She has to reap all of that destruction and how that impacts her. And I think that's where a lot of the blame from the community comes from is the fact that, like, Kevin is not going to have the consequences that they want. And I think we see this, like, a lot of times when a shooter in a school kills themselves or, you know does not survive the shooting because there's no there's no trial they're not going to jail they're just it's over and there's nowhere to direct all of this hurt and yeah. i think because kevin has orchestrated all of this to basically get as little consequences as possible like it has to go somewhere all of this energy and it just goes all towards eva mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is what he really probably wanted <laughs> exactly yeah and it's yeah. just it's so fucking chilling that scene at the end though that has that's another one that has stuck with me. There's like the the big the four ones that really kind of haunted me where he just says, I used to think I knew why I, I don't know why anymore. And there's a part of me as cold as this probably sounds, although I am have been identifying with Eva. So I guess it fits um, like that wants to see the moment when Franklin realizes that she has. Been I wanted right. to see that, too. I was like the whole movie. I was like. Oh, I can't wait for him to see that she was right, and we don't get to see it. We know we the don't. aftermath. We're denied even that pleasure on exactly. Eva's behalf. I think that would be so horrific. Yeah, I think so because too. Because I think when you see the aftermath of it, it looks it the way the bodies are positioned mm-hmm. that like the that the father and daughter are kind of running towards one another. Yeah, mm-hmm. and. For all of Franklin's faults, he didn't deserve that. He no. did not, and that's why I say, like, I feel uh, that's not the that's not what I want from for Franklin. No, mm-hmm. but I um, did want to see because well, I you know I hadn't seen this movie before, so I didn't realize the one thing I didn't realize is that he was going to kill Franklin and Celia, mm-hmm. and so I was like the whole movie. I'm like, I can't wait for him to find out that he did this school shooting just because I mm-hmm. want him to understand that she was right. And then the way that that's revealed, it's just like you get yeah. you get nothing, you get nothing, <laughs> like, right? You know, and. The novel is is a series of letters that she's writing to her husband, and you don't realize that he's dead as she's writing them. Mm, and I remember when classic. I got to that part, when I got to that part, I had to go back and reread it. I'm like, I'm missing something here. Mm. Like he's the, he's dead. Like it really hit me. Really? Like, it felt like a real punch to the stomach, mm-hmm. and that made it all the more heartbreaking at that point. Yeah. Yeah. That's what the, the complete loneliness and devastation and not, Mm -hmm. and the inability to have closure or answers is just what left me feeling so gut punched Mm -hmm. after this movie. And, um, you know, and then the seat, so she's wearing the Led Zeppelin t-shirt and folding up his, I mean, it's just like, she is again, she is that map room. She is who she was and who she became as a mother. And she's stained with all these paints and she's, keeping the t-shirts in the house and she but she's utterly alone and it's like that that Mm -hmm. that tension is so unspeakably sad Mm -hmm. and I and I love that last line that that he says though because I think that really speaks to what mental illness is I think Mm -hmm. that we grasp for answers in these moments or motivation and oftentimes there is no true motivation or the source of it is obscure even to the beholder, you know? Yeah. You, you mm-hmm. don't know. You are just driven by these impulses inside you and you, you are almost a slave no. to them. And I, and I think that that was just so, again, incredibly sad, but I thought it was the perfect way to end the movie. Yeah, I think and so And there's too. a nihilism that's in Kevin that's not present in Eva. Like, you know, there's a certain type of person that would have computer viruses stacked up. God. 
uh, you know, uh-huh. one against another. It's just the worst. You know? <laughs> like... And he just, why do you do it? He's like, well, why not? Like, right. That's the whole point. Um, there is the point is there is no point mm-hmm. to quote Michael Caine in The Dark Knight. Some people just want to watch the world burn. <laughs> Again, yeah. jo- Joker so, 2019. Uh, yes. um, well, I think it's interesting there, though, because if there's any kind of catharsis or resolution we see, it is when he is afraid to go to the adult prison. Mm-hmm. And it's just and it's not it, I feel weird calling it catharsis, but it is a slight bit of recognition that he is going to suffer for what he's done to. Mm-hmm. And, and he already he looks, afraid. yeah, and he already looks he like he's been beat up a bit, you know, and all this. Like he's not having a good time in prison. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Although, and, I mean, she's still like, that probably is not going to change anything for her. And it's not like no. he's ever going to say, oh, it's because you did X, Y, and Z when I was a baby. Like there is no reason. It's just, right. this is the way it shook out, you know, and she could have been a cold standoffish mother and had two children like Celia or but this is what Mm -hmm. happened and it's just so it's so heartbreaking to know and when I was sometimes I look at my kids and I think like please don't do anything terrible like please (laughs) please, you know yeah it's just like I keep thinking like because my son is just I know I'm biased but he's so fucking cute and I'm like I I have to I have to teach you to be nice because Mm -hmm. I don't want you to turn into this kind of person that will hurt Mm -hmm. other people and it's just the fear that you will and my daughter had a, a when she was three she she's just she's a very unique child and she was going through this phase where she screamed all the time and I kept getting pulled into daycare to talk about her behavior and I had to get to this point where I said, I am not responsible for her actions. And that sounds, I think, on the surface that I don't want to take responsibility for raising her. But it was just like, I cannot take the shame of her actions Mm -hmm. upon myself because it doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help me help her. It just makes me want to hide from Mm -hmm. everyone. And it just, I don't know exactly where I was going with that. It's just that I I just, this is such a tragedy for Eva, you know. I think that ties into like the community and how they see Eva. Mm -hmm. Because, like, they hold her responsible because at the end of the day, like, they they can't get to Kevin. Yeah. And they have this grief, this loss, that this hole in their lives that's never going to be filled by anything again. Mm -hmm. And then when they see her walking around town, they don't feel compassion for her because I think Lara, as you point out, she's a victim too. Like, she lost her husband she lost her daughter and as well there's the one person who shows her sympathy is is the kid who's in a wheelchair because kevin put mm-hmm. him there and he, he uh-huh. rolls up and it's like his kindness to her is almost more painful than right. than the cruelty she doesn't know how to react to it's, it. like, yeah. it's ju- i mean it's just as much of a, a of a right. of a wound to her yeah yeah well we need to talk about that table scene Okay. <laughs> what a segue. So sorry. And folks, it's a you'll... segue that works for, for any moment in this episode. I know. <laughs> and that's why I've used it nine times. <laughs> yeah. that It's such a chilling scene. I feel like this is more of the, like, oh, well, don't you know you can just pick him up and smile at him, and that solves all the problems. I feel like he's really kind of Franklin's attitude towards this really bothers me. Yeah. First, I want to ask, do we think that Kevin is responsible for Celia or was it an accident and Eva accidentally left the, the Drano? Up? Oh, it's Kevin. I think it's definitely. Ke- I mean, it's, it's Kevin. I thought it was Kevin as well. And I know the author leaves it. Well, you know, you never know. She thinks it, uh, she but like again, autorial so. attempt and blah, blah, blah. She doesn't like, and Eva, it doesn't really sure. matter at that point because he, he would, he would have done. Right. You know, and like, right. 
one of the things about the real irony of the title of this movie, the parents never do talk about Kevin. Mm-hmm. And that's why things continue to escalate. And that's why they end the way they do. Franklin refuses to entertain any idea other than Kevin as a normal, well-functioning, blue-blooded American kid. <laughs> mm-hmm. He cuts any conversation headed in, direct, in this direction off of the knees, even after his daughter loses an eye. That's when they're sitting outside the hospital and Eve is like, we need to discuss, Kevin did this. And he just gets up and says, go see someone. And he walks Mm -hmm. away. The table scene afterwards is really, it's the point where the marriage just dissolves. Mm -hmm. Because Eva is basically browbeaten. Have you ever been, like, when you're a kid and you do something really bad and your parents, like, march you over to the person and they force you to apologize? Mm -hmm. This is essentially what Franklin, a grown adult, does to Eva, his grown adult wife, mm-hmm. where he basically, mom wants to let you know that you might think this is your fault, but it's really not your fault. And Eva has to say these words that you can feel how bitter they feel in her mouth mm-hmm. and how angry she is that she's being forced to say them. And she also understands how much joy it's bringing her son. Yes. Mm-hmm. To watch her in that to position. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like all of the hope of ever getting support mm-hmm. from Franklin just kind of dies. It's gone. Completely gone. Yeah. And Kevin is able, this is like the one moment where Kevin lets his mask down a little bit in front of his dad. Mm-hmm. Because he's just so happy with what a total victory this is. It's almost like his Bond villain reveal mm-hmm. moment. It's where like he's twirling like, his mustache. <laughs> yes. Eating that weird little fruit, whatever it is. I go. Mm-hmm. Right. The little passion fruit. That oh, is he that eats. a passion fruit? But okay, ba- yes. <laughs> but I think so. But what he basically says to his dad is like, "Well, why would I feel guilty about this? I didn't do anything wrong." Well, you were, you know, maybe you were supposed to watch her. Well, I can't. Shit happens, you know. And like, well, you know, kids might tease her. Well, she's gonna have to grow up, man. Kids are mean. Mm, yeah. You know, God. there's just no feeling at all for his younger sister there, even if it was an accident. Right. He's like great this is fantastic and then the way that he positions he peels the fruit and it looks like an eyeball and he squishes it in his teeth and for the dad to miss that yeah it's like your kid Mm -hmm. is clearly a fucking psychopath like god damn it like yeah yeah so could this have been prevented it would have had to have been caught by both parents and they would have had to have been on the same page i do find it odd and again i'm sorry to keep going back to the author like there was a question that was asked in this show i listened to like all of these signs of psychopathy were so clear and this was obviously a very wealthy well-to-do family why was the idea of mental health treatment for kevin never even raised Mm -hmm. and lionel shriver took real like umbrage to this notion that like there was something wrong with kevin Mm -hmm. And she made it a point to say, like, well, there are some kids that are in diapers till six. It happens. It's not that weird. Yep, not the same and thing. And growing up, <laughs> I had younger brothers, and they acted like this, and they weren't some weirdos that needed therapy. And she makes it a point to say, and I really do like this about the novel. Everything is filtered through Eva's lens. And there's a part of it where Eva is trying to have this cathartic thing where she can absolve herself from some of the guilt that she does feel, which is a very natural and understanding thing because she is not guilty for Kevin's behaviors. Mm -hmm. 
but all of the actions of Kevin up to the point of the murder spree are filtered through her lens. Mm -hmm. And perhaps the screaming wasn't as bad as we thought, but it was exaggerated because that's how Eva experienced it. Maybe he really did want to just kind of paint her room over a little bit and he wanted to quote-unquote help Mm -hmm. out. Maybe she did leave out the Drano. Who knows? The author really comes down heavily judgmental on the side of Eva, and there's a lot of her that's in that character like when you hear her speak Mm -hmm. that kind of like coldness that aloofness Mm -hmm. it's all there and she's like i really like kevin because he's smart and he's clever well it's very i'm fascinated like by i feel like that's like a really interesting psychological thing is that sometimes these you know people who have unresolved issues can produce really stunning works of art that Mm -hmm. accidentally provide insight into those issues because you know uh even like the hitcher it was kind of like that. It's like, I don't think that the guy that wrote that screenplay wanted to d- tell, you know, um, t- when this is spoiler alert for the future, I don't think the issues uh, that we end up discussing in that episode are something that the that author had in mind when he wrote that screenplay, but subconsciously right. he infused it with this stuff that is actually really interesting. And, and I think that that might be going on a little bit here too. Like her, her own biases against Eva are so much mm-hmm. of her, maybe her self-hatred. Again, I'm making a lot of assumptions here that could be very easily wrong. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. I, you know, you see this in, in dynamics with people you may know in your family and stuff. Like they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're proje- they project, you know. And, and then yeah. the fact that we are finding Eva more sympathetic than the author does, it may be something to do with self-hatred, self-loathing. Yeah, um, and I, I would agree. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think that that it's just really interesting. Like I'm, I'm gonna try mm-hmm. very hard not to judge her for it. I know um, it's but, hard, but I, but I, but I do think it's, I think it's, it, she, whatever yeah. her intentions were, she created an accidentally very challenging but sympathetic portrait mm-hmm. of this woman, yeah. of Eva. Yeah, the yeah. way that I read that or I experienced that interview was that she was um, judging Eva for making a choice. Like she she says at the beginning of the interview, she says, I chose not to have children and Eva did. And look what mm-hmm. happened to her. You know, she doesn't say it like mm-hmm. that, but that's the way I intuited yeah. what she was saying. Yeah, I, I 100 percent agree. And it's and again, like what the author intends and how we read it, you know, don't necessarily right. have mm-hmm. to go hand in hand. The one area where I strongly disagreed with her is like, this is not any one small thing. Right. Like, it is a series of incidents that build upon yes. one another, mm-hmm. and they and they you know they get more violent in their scope mm-hmm. um, and more destructive as time goes on. They don't get less so; they get more and so. That's... So there was a clear history. Mm-hmm. Of, of things and, and then we see that with killers and people who exhibit psychopathy mm. or violent psychopathy is there usually is an escalation and that's where you get the mm-hmm. the very obvious example being like they torture animals and then they move on to like people yeah. you know but right. i mean that that escalation is very much at play at play mm-hmm. here and you see that you see the animal tortured here for no other reason except it made celia happy mm-hmm. right yeah well so we've talked about a lot here Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we needed to, so it's good. Um, yes. That joke is never going to get old, I promise. <laughs> um, so the next section that we're going to, that we usually have is other mental health topics we see. And I don't necessarily see anything more than what we've talked about, except I wanted to point out, and I'm going to be really quick, um, that this is a really effective depiction of flashbacks and like re-experiencing trauma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love the framing of her scrubbing the paint off the house. It yes. not only like makes me think of like Lady Macbeth, but it also is like a, a good 
representation of how lots of times a physical movement will help process things in the brain. And I just wanted to call that out. I know that may be yeah. fodder for another episode down the road, but I loved how how we just weave seamlessly through these time periods. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. and that was yeah. really effective. Really, really great direction. Really great storytelling. Yeah. Oh yeah. One super super quick thing that I like in the movie that that moment with the uh, the basically the little guinea pig or hamster mm-hmm. in the drain makes me so sad I know. when eva explains cecilia what happened and you know obviously like oh he must have got out and blah 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 celia immediately looks out the window and looks at kevin yeah like celia knows wait do you mean eva no, no. Oh, celia, celia. Mm. The, the little girl oh, actually looks out the window and looks at her brother in the yard like yeah and there's this look on her face like she knows she knows something, isn't something right. is wrong mm-hmm. i think because she has a complex relationship with her brother she clearly admires mm-hmm. him but i think she realizes he's dangerous because he's yes. constantly fucking with her you know right it's hard. No. i think children children are smarter than we give them credit for they mm-hmm. will pick up on those subtle emotional things more mm-hmm. so than maybe yeah. the dad because they're not socialized out of it yet. Yeah, you know? exactly. No. It's just well, like a lizard brain thing. You know? Right. The thing that's the most chilling to me in that scene is when Eva looks out and and mm-hmm. Kevin sees her and they make eye contact and he just drops that face that he has with the mm-hmm. dad. He's yeah. like, yeah, I know you just found it. Yeah, I did it. And it's just the the tension between those two. It's just great oh. performances. I mean, my God, I can't like kudos to these performers and exactly. to this direct yeah. to this director. I mean, really across really, the board, the yeah. art direction, masterful storytelling. I mean, I really I I can't. And I know I'm only saying going uh, being you know effusive here is because we're at the end of it. Like really yeah. hard one movie to watch, but no. one, one, a very masterfully crafted movie yeah and i mean i know it's the title and i keep making this joke but we need to talk about things like this because the whole point of this podcast exactly (laughs) exactly yeah Yeah, because they'll keep happening if we don't talk about it and we don't talk Mm -hmm. about how they make us feel and what it makes us do and you know it's just we need to talk about it so and i think what what true too is like how difficult it is to talk about the how much of our conversation is focused on Eva, yeah. the mom versus Kevin, because like there's still a part of us that like doesn't want to think of bad kids. Like there's yep. no such thing as bad kids. Like eh, sometimes mm. there are. Well, and we could easily have had a really long conversation about Franklin too. I know no. like he's kind of really frustrating in this movie, but I think there's a lot of that denial to kind of look into also it's just it's hard to talk about because there's so much mm -hmm. blame and shame that goes into it and and it's important that this movie was not told from kevin's perspective kevin is not the protagonist or Mm anti-hero we are with eva for this experience i think it would be a very difficult task to make a movie from the pov of someone who we don't fully understand because i think there is so Mm -hmm. much about psychopathy and this kind of behavior that we don't understand and that it right. and 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 if we were just to stay with someone and watch them be manipulative and creepy it becomes a, a very different flavor of movie um, yeah. and I, th- I think the ambiguity here and the uncertainty is more what I got out of it than so right. much an exploration of psychopathy it's more just how it ripples out and affects the people closest to it yeah well it's how we it's how we root for Tony Soprano for like six seasons of a show despite him being a really terrible person yeah yeah, it's like the Walter White thing where he becomes the mm-hmm. hero of the story and everybody hates Skylar. Well, so speaking mm. of other things, 
Now, we're going to take just a moment to talk about any other movies we see these themes in. And I know we normally kind of take a minute to unpack what these movies or shows are. We're not going to do that today because we're already, we've, we've just talked about a lot today. We're but tired. <laughs> we are tired. Yeah, this is, an, this is a heavy emotional one. But um, the two that I picked out were Dexter. And I think I see it in like he knows what the rules are and he mm. chooses to manipulate the rules so that he can pass by in society. And then I also picked the Babadook. Anytime there's like a, a, a mother that I sympathize with, I think it makes me think of the Babadook. <laughs> yes. Do you guys see this? I'm sorry. Do you pil- yeah. pilgrims see this? <laughs> I have the... <laughs> Y'all, pil- y'all pilgrims. Y'all pilgrims see this Pilgrims. All <laughs> 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 right. So I had the bad seed. Um, which is like one of the first movies to really have like a depiction of a killer kid. Mm-hmm. The incidents, I think the simpler times, the look, the inciting incidents, what's a pencil or like a, um, yeah, a spelling bee or something like and that. And then she like pushes the kid down or is it, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Gus Van Sant's Elephant, mm-hmm. uh, which is a movie that was started out as like a documentary about Columbine and then became like a fictionalized retelling of it. There's a little movie from like six or seven years ago called The Dirties. It's like a found footage movie about burgeoning school shooters. Oh, interesting. And it's really fucking good. That sounds and it's very written, up my alley. Yeah. Written, directed, and starred by a kid that looks like he was in high school. Mm. I think it's either on Shudder or Netflix, but it is streaming. This is the kind of thing that should be like a must watch in any sort of like abnormal psychology class like mm. i thought it was really well done awesome. so definitely check that out yeah i um i also thought of the bad seed that's one of my the first something approximating horror movies i ever watched because i remember mm-hmm. i watched it with my mom she loved that movie and she's like check out this evil little girl movie <laughs> you know so mm-hmm. yeah. it made a strong impression on me at the young at a young age and then i also thought of the good son with <laughs> elijah wood and macaulay calkin very different flavor of film yeah. but some of the similar themes and then the first season of american horror story which i <laughs> i have a lot of issues with that show but i do like the first enjoy i should say i do enjoy the first few seasons and they I kind of too. have mm-hmm. the, the ghost character that was a school shooter who is mm-hmm. kind of caught in a, in a in that emotional loop? Yeah, but none of these are quite as sophisticated as Kevin. Yeah, Kevin's kind of a, it's kind of a special movie in a yeah. lot of ways. I also want to point out I had a huge crush on Elijah Wood in The Good Son <laughs> back in the day. <laughs> Probably not very surprising, but Under- um, understandable. Yeah, he's. He, I found out he was my exact same age, and I just thought. Like I'm talking the year, and I thought, oh yeah, we're destined to get married because Naturally. we're both 13 well, right now. He's he's a big horror guy, you know. He I'm is. Just saying, hey, if you're happen. listening, <laughs> I mean, I am married, but I you know, know, I know, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> but he's on my list, and it's laminated. So, well, so now it's time for our uplifting moment. Oh boy, do we need this uplifting oh, moment? Ooh, yeah. Because, mama, mama. <laughs> because we need to talk about it. Grounding in self-care. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know the holidays can be really stressful in an ordinary year. And this year is anything but ordinary. Also, we just unpacked this really heavy movie. So really important that we're checking in with ourselves about our stress levels and making sure we're taking care of ourselves. And remember, self-care can be anything we do that makes us feel better. And grounding or coping strategies are the little tips, tricks, or mantras that help us get through the tough or stressful moments and keep going with our day. So let's go around and share any grounding or self-care that we've been using recently. Does anyone want to share something? 
Baby Jen, you start. <laughs> <laughs> well, I realized I I had forgotten to think about something that I was going to do. Um, <laughs> that tells and, you kind of where we're all at mentally. Oh, is if I know. We're sitting here going, I don't fucking know. I know. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I know that I'm looking forward to having some self-care. Um, I, yeah. One thing I did do is I started to realize how much social media is draining my emotions and I kind of in running this like running the social accounts for this pod like I I feel like I need to post throughout the day so I just started setting alarms on my phone and Mm -hmm. then when Mm -hmm. that alarm goes off I check in for five minutes and I post and I retweet and I do whatever and then I check out and or at least I did that for today and I actually felt a little lighter and I feel like I feel guilty when I say that because I know I really want to interact with a lot of listeners. And no, I, want- I, I, I was, I was sorry that I completely just interrupted you. No, there. No. I, I was just going to say, I think that what you did is a really, really great example of setting boundaries for yourself and how important that is. Even if it's something that you get a lot out of, like engaging with people on social media, even if it's interacting with somebody you love, like a spouse or a parent or something, mm-hmm. setting those kind of boundaries is so important. And if you found a little like, hashtag life hack for doing that like that's great I think that's Mm -hmm. really smart yeah and if I have so if I have not responded to your tweet or your reply I still love you I'm just trying to (laughs) not lose my mind (laughs) you know yeah yeah I gotta gotta take care of yourself you gotta take care you gotta put your own oxygen mask on before you can fucking help the people next to you you know know. otherwise you burn out which is I know that book that you said you're reading which I do is also on my list yeah Um, yeah I'm looking forward to reading that over the break and I I also am hearing myself saying that and realizing like how much guilt I attach to setting boundaries too so mm -hmm. just wanted to put that in the world so maybe I can start understanding it so I love you listeners. Thank you. (laughs) So my whole life right now revolves around holding a tiny dog in my lap until she needs to pee. Oh, poor baby. And then I bring her outside and then um, she pees and I tell her she's a good girl and I pick her up and I bring her in. Like last week, our dog, a little 11 pound Chihuahua mini pin was like hit by a car like right outside our house. And we rushed her to the pet ER. Uh, which we're very lucky. There is one like right near us. Uh, was so great, and she survived. Yay. Like we are kind of stunned. Like there were like five different instances where I'm like, oh my god, she's not gonna make it, mm-hmm. or she's already dead. Um, and that was like the hardest, most emotionally toughest day I think I've had in a long time. Yeah. I generally speaking don't cry. Like I just really. It's, you know, I feel sad and I feel emotions like everybody Mm -hmm. does, but like very few things make me actually cry. And that day I did like a little baby. That seems really reasonable reaction to that. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, we thought when we dropped her off and then we waited outside because you can't go in right now, Mm -hmm. like we're going to get the call. Like, you know, we put her under, she's not in any pain and then that would be it. And they're like, oh. We have her on a lot of like pain medication. We're going to give it like 24 hours. And if she's stable, we can operate. And lo and behold, by midnight, like she's like, yep, she's already eating. She's friendly. She's off oxygen. We're going to operate. And, you know, like a new pelvis later, mm. bruised lungs. One of her eyes was really looked like it was kind of going to pop oh. out. Um, it's back to normal. We brought her home on Thursday and we've basically like 
Okay, so this is a long-winded way of me saying that, like, we've taken turns sleeping in the living room in a little pull-out mattress next to her crate, and we just, like, get up and take her out to pee. But today, like, she was walking on her own, and, like, her little bum was wiggling. (laughs) And, like, to the point where I had to, like, chase her, I'm like, oh, my God, she's going to run through the whole Mm -hmm. yard and and wear herself out because you have to support her right now. Mm -hmm. But she can, like, you can tell that she's kind of mending. Yeah. Uh, and we're just like super grateful to have like Lacey mm. back home with us. So my really my self care right now is literally when it looks like it's time for her to go to the bathroom, like holding her and then going, okay, now we're going to go out and like carrying her outside so she can do her business. Mm. Poor little baby. So, yeah. Well, that's great. That's little, great of you to to take care of her like you did because a lot of people mm-hmm. would not be willing to go that far for their pet. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Her new name is Freshman because it literally cost us basically our daughter's freshman year of college mm. at a good state school. So, oh, they? It, but it was better than we thought. To be honest, it was like half of what we thought it was yeah. going to be. Yeah, so I, we lucked yeah. out. I'm sorry that you had to go through that too. Worth every penny. Yeah. <sighs> Laura, do you have anything you want to share, Laura? Or did you already kind of? feel like I kept having things pop into my head and then go away, which is another just an example of how tired I am. I guess yeah. I um. I just keep thinking of all the ways that I set myself up for success this last week or so and then failed to do the things that I knew would make me feel better, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, and, I, and I've just been struggling. There was a few days in the last week where I felt a little sick, like I might have been coming down with something, and that really freaked me out for obvious reasons, and literally the only places I had been were the doctor's office and, and Walgreens to um, pick up stuff after I had injured my hand, mm-hmm. um, and so I was like... I was in this state of mind, like, if I manage to get sick from literally just going to the fucking doctor, like, I'm going to, like, I'm going to freak out because I've been working so hard to isolate myself and, and stay on top of all the things you're supposed to be doing. So I was mm-hmm. really having a, a bad few days psychologically, but I don't know what it was. It seems to have passed. I'm just continuing to self-isolate like I have been all year. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've just been allowing myself a lot of, like, sleep and just being a little fucking baby because I (laughs) was like I think I might have even stressed myself out into having those symptoms so I'm Mm -hmm. just like I may be a little fragile right now but just take it easy on yourself and like Mm -hmm. what I need to do is just get my body moving more and that's the only thing I've really been Mm -hmm. failing to do and Mm -hmm. and I just I it usually has a a detrimental effect if I let it go on for too long so I just know I need to to keep on top of that but yeah yeah that's where I'm at yeah, I think we're all just kind of tired. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, one, this was an emotional episode, and I think um, a, a tricky one to talk about, but also just, I am just ready. I'm so ready for Thanksgiving. I know yeah. this is Yeah, I need those days off. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. I'm really looking forward to just watching a movie that I'm not going to talk about or write about, you know? Yes. And as much mm-hmm. as I love talking about movies on this episode, it's like my brain can kind of turn off a little bit, you know? You, you need yeah. to have those times where your brain turns off. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so now we need to talk about what you think. And I think that's the last time <laughs> we want to hear from you. Do you agree or disagree with what we've said? Um, how do you feel when you watch this movie? What's your grounding or self care or anything else on your mind? I imagine you probably have a lot of thoughts and feelings about this just like we do. And we want to hear that. Um, you can do that by following us on socials at Psycho A Pod. You can also join the Psychoanalysis Podcast Support Group on Facebook to share your thoughts or answers to the questions of the day or discussion prompts. 
um, or just anything else on your mind. It's a private and moderated group, and there are some just amazing and supportive people in it. It's kind of becoming this little community that just makes me so happy. You can also join the Psychoanalysis Ahara Therapy Family Facebook group that is listener created. It's also private and moderated. And there's a lot of overlap in the people that are in both of those groups. So they're both just uh, really supportive and positive communities. And we really want them to be a safe place to talk about some tough topics. Our homework question for the week, and we kind of went back and forth on what this was going to be, as I think we'll probably do when the topics are a little heavy. But the question that we landed on was what is the worst behavior you ever exhibited as a kid that really stands out to you and <laughs> and keep it real yeah folks. you know with, with, the under, with the understanding that if you you know the confidentiality only goes so far we're not right we're not right. quite HIPAA compliant over here and if and if you say that you murdered right. your sister and buried her body <laughs> out back we do have to report that. Oh, that's true. <laughs> that you, but, yes. So, yeah, what's the worst behavior you ever exhibited as a kid that really stands out? And I've been posting the prompts for that, too. Uh, so look out for those. And what are we watching next? Whew. So now, I'm sorry I said it was the last one, but so now we need to talk about what we're watching next. Um, oh, <laughs> I know I'm never going to stop. <laughs> We've got a comfort horror episode coming up. Whew. And we are going to be joined by Mel Castle from the Losers Club. And we're going to be talking about The Hitcher, the Yay. original with Rugger Hauer. I'm and so excited for this one. I, I, I think this is like, like you have say, we, you know, we, we did already record this episode mm-hmm. um, because we just needed to get our November episodes recorded. But yeah, I, and, and I just think Mel is brilliant. And this episode mm-hmm. is one of my favorites that we've recorded. Yeah, it, it really she has a really fascinating reading of this movie, which was really exciting to talk about. And and I agree. I think she she is such a good analytical like she analyzes art so well. And mm-hmm. I just love hearing her talk about stuff like that. Same. Yeah. Um. So watch The Hitcher if you dare. And I don't know where that came from, but yeah, why not? Whatever. Throw, throw, <laughs> spice right. it up. Exactly. Yeah. Um, We are the member of the Consequence Podcast Network. There are lots of other pods on the network with us, including Halloweenies and the Losers Club. There's also the new Going There with Dr. Mike, a pod about mental health and music. And you can find them all by going to Consequence of Sound. Dot com. You'll also find lots of other content on music, movies and pop culture in general. Mike, where can we find you these days? We need to talk about my other podcast, <laughs> The Pod of the Pendulum. <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> so it's so much fun. Um, you can also you can find me on Twitter at Mike underscore Snoonian, also at Pod and Pend over on Twitter. Definitely check out the Pod and the Pendulum. Um, undergoing some changes <laughs> right now as we as we record this. Some changes to be determined, Ooh. but I'm kind of very excited to see what 2021 is going to bring and how that show grows. Mm-hmm. So I think that this will be a movie that if we start doing some more thematic things is going to like really early on be something that we revisit again. So God, <laughs> I love talking about this movie. <laughs> me too. Laura, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I get so excited. Uh, I, know, it's, I never, I rarely if ever plan these. So uh, watch <laughs> the wheels turn at underalls u n d e r a l l s just like the diaper full of shit oh. that you you wear to torture your mother with 
<laughs> and you're slightly too old to be crapping yourself, but you're mm. still doing it. Sometimes you, it just writes itself, you know. You know, like, I know this one. This one there. was kind of, uh, yeah, it's, uh, round peg, round hole. Like, right. Yeah, yeah. You know, but uh, still, well done. I like. Thank, it. thank it's you, U N D E R A L S on Twitter <laughs> and Instagram at Instaglum, uh, where I mostly post in my stories pictures of my dog and long anxiety-filled um, political things. So uh, enjoy. It's great. And you should definitely follow me. I mean, I'm sometimes on Losers Club and Halloweenies as well. And you can find me at Jim Ferratu on socials. You can also find me on the Losers Club. And Laura and I are going to be on a commentary together. Yes. Ta- it might be available now on Patreon talking about Carrie. Yes, uh, I haven't done one of these yet, so I'm excited to, tr- to do a movie commentary track. <laughs> I haven't either. And I think we both have decided it's going to be filled with facts about menstruation. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a almost Excellent. menstruation, a purely menstruation-filled co- commentary Exactly. Track, yeah. Yeah, actually, uh, I actually think I will like look up a bunch of factoids. About <laughs> I do just in case we can't think of anything to say. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, hey, we'll Mac, just... have you heard this about periods? <laughs> a, apparently. Well, that sounds. Totally it does. Funny. Hey, we need to talk about periods more. Okay. <laughs> oh, <boy. laughs> and we're gonna do it now. Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, so, and so you can find me there too. Yeah fun times so <laughs> so that's our episode we needed to talk about it and we did <laughs> and that's one the last, last one <laughs> i know yeah thank you so much for joining us make sure you watch the hitcher for next week and that's it for us because we came oh fuck i forgot what it was <laughs> i didn't write my weirdness into we the notes that's right <laughs> Chew bubblegum and take care of ourselves. And we're all out of bubblegum. All out of bubblegum. But we have jelly sandwiches. We do. We need need to talk about those jelly sandwiches. Oh, one last (laughs) one. Consequence Podcast Network.